you have arrived. Do not adjust your monitor. Make sure your tinfoil hat is shiny. Lock your doors. If you're standing, sit down. If you're sitting, lie down. If you're driving, please pull over. Swipe and share. Curse and comment. Open debate. Trolls welcome. Resist or mega. Left or right. Darkness or light. Flight or fight. Political turmoil. Innuendo. Lies. Deception. Rhetoric. Fake news. AI. Extremism. Lucifer. And laughs. Welcome to the Daily Boogie. Good evening. Hello, TikTok, Poppy Lane. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> TikTok, TikTok, TikTok. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, before we get to any serious business whatsoever, um, we do need to address the lovely young Poppy Lane in the chat. She has a problem. Do you remember those? Do you remember those uh, those old time advertisements when you were a kid uh, talking about the very tragic situations of say? children starving in Africa and whatnot, and you, you would put up a picture of, you know, a very a small African boy or girl, clearly malnourished, and then this voiceover would come over the top. I, it seared into my brain. This voiceover would come over the top and it would say, you know, this is a kun. A kun comes from a very poor village. A kun's village cannot afford food or water. Please help a kun. So now I'm going to make that very same that very same plea for help to the lovely young Poppy Lane. This is Poppy Lane. Poppy Lane cannot get the term TikTok out of her head, even though she really hates it. Poppy Lane cannot come up with a, Poppy Lane cannot come up with a crappy song to think about for the next 20 minutes. <laughs> Please help Poppy Lane. Uh, if any of you at any time see Poppy Lane say the, say the words TikTok, I want you to pounce... I want you to jump on her, abuse her, obviously. <laughs> Tell her to shut up or something. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Because we're all about solutions here. I want to say hello to Tom Chatelet, the real Don Craig, General Eaton, the boss, the owner and CEO of TAVshow.com, ladies and gentlemen. James R. has joined us from the chat. He has broken away from his, uh, would you say, Fourth or fifth Lommy Lommy massage for the day. I'm not sure. I, I, I can't. I can't keep count. The fourth or fifth Lommy Lommy massage for the owner and CEO of TAVShow.com in the Hawaii headquarters, whilst he is being fed pistachio nuts by the lovely Dorothy Boyd, who did follow us out of the place that we built 
our previous place of employment. Uh, Key Wizard, Christy, Christy, Lucifer Sam, thanks for joining us. Good to see you, mate. We're going to get some interesting chat tonight. <laughs> Diamond Poopsie, one of my favorite names. Ducks Regina, Stefan Sears, Laurie. Who else have we got? Kimmy Jong Un, of course. The Clean Jack. The Clean Jack. We don't like a dirty Jack. Sin Soak just joined us. Trahan, hello, hello. Thanks, everyone. Full Circle over on YouTube. Thanks for joining us over there. What an absolutely sensational week. So, only three today. Glass, the damn glass cutters. <laughs> so, we do have plenty to get into. Um, to be honest, to be brutally honest, I had like this, I had a, you know, a monologue. I don't take notes. Like, I'm not a note taker. I don't read off anything. I kind of formulate the ideas of what I want to talk about in my head. And then I bring up a couple of articles. I like, I read the, a couple of paragraphs and I'm like, yeah, we can do that. And same with the clips. Like, I don't watch the whole clip. I don't think about it. I bring up a clip. I watch the first 20 or 30 seconds and I go, yeah, this is going to be good. Because I like to leave everything on the fly. I like to be as improv as possible. And that includes with the monologue. So, you know, a couple of hours ago, I'm thinking, hmm, what can I, what can I talk about to open up the show with? Because I like to do something semi-serious and then blend into the absurd like that. Like you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even know it happened. And, you know, I was thinking about things like climate change and the politics of climate change, all very serious stuff. And then Laura Luma went and fucked it all up. (laughs) She went and completely destroyed any train of thought, any trajectory. So I guess we should open up with that. I'd say, and again, like I I like to open up with the shredder to put an article through the shredder, loosen up, gets the tonsils working, gets the lips moving. You know what I mean? But I don't even know if I could do that now. There was some very spirited debate in the Trust and Verify Telegram room. If you're not in that room and you would like to be, please head over to Kimmy uh, Kimmy Jong-un. She will direct you in the right direction. Um, But now I do have a tendency, for those who are concerned, I do have a tendency in written form, I kind of write like I'm someone who speaks English as a second language. Like it's very short the way I write, I don't extrapolate on feelings or anything like that. I kind of chop right to the point when I write because, you know, writing's a labor. Whereas I could talk all day. I feel like when I write something, I have to get it out and over and done, bang, as succinctly as possible. Unless, of course, I'm trying to fuck with you. If I'm trying to manipulate you for some other political reason, then, of course, I will take my time and think about every word that I insert. (laughs) But There is a discussion there to be had. So before, I guess we will open up with Laura Luma. But before we do that, I just want to say a big thank you to the guys uh, who have been downloading the podcast. The the podcast that we did a couple of days ago in regards to the dangerous power of storytelling, um, an amazing story to me that just slipped through under the radar of just about everyone. No one was talking about it. And just in short, you know, and that was like my, by far my most downloaded podcast by far. So word must've got out and I have to thank you for that. And because that kind of stuff, not much triggers me in this world. I, I, 
I tend to think that I've pretty much seen everything that has been classed offensive and walked through it. And, I, and, and nothing really offends me anymore. But uh, when you have something like that, an issue like that, where it's someone's writing a book from a different perspective and an overwhelmingly positive message that's really calling on, harking on the tradition, the post-enlightenment tradition in Western civilization that we have for storytelling and how stories can be empowering and inspirational. And that even, you know, the main character in a story might be filled with all kinds of extremist dogma and hate and, you know, fear and anger and the antithesis of everything that we, you know, fondly look back on with rose-coloured glasses in that area. You know, this subject could fall in love at, at a moment when he's supposed to be at his most destructive and fall in love with, like I said, the great Western tradition of storytelling and, and reading and enlightenment and self-learning. And then to have, you know, apparently a pack of authors turn around and ban the book, not even, not even fascists. Like, I always thought fascists were the ones that banned books. I thought it was the middle age the middle ages you know hardcore theologians that banned material that burnt books that burnt scriptures that they didn't like dangerous stuff I thought these were the people that we're supposed to look out for not authors right but apparently a group of authors apparently and I'll put in quotation marks allegedly authors got together and decided to ban a potential work of art from one of their colleagues and you know we can talk about um, we can talk about things like social media bannings. We can talk about riots in the street. We can talk about all all kinds of things that point to a kind of degradation and a solidification. You know, an entrenched combativeness in modern day society. But to me, just personally, on a personal level. Uh, Nothing keeps me up late at night more. All of that other shit by comparison can float down a river, can go by the wayside as far as I'm concerned. But nothing keeps me up late at night more than the the attempts and the willingness and the ever-increasing, would you say, you know, the ever-increasing suffoc- suff- suffocation of creativity itself. The flickering light of creativity burns so dimly now. And to have people in that engaged in that sphere doing the censoring for other people, I just find abhorrent on every possible conceivable level. And I make no apologies for it. So that's basically in short what the, what the podcast was about. I'm gonna have to take a I'm gonna have to take a chill pill here. Mm. Once again, it is absolutely stinking hot in this room. So I thank you for joining me. I am sweating in the extremities. I am sweating in places where I never thought I'd be sweating before. Apparently, that global warming shit's real. We will talk about that a little later on. There was a nationwide protest today of school children. <laughs> school children took the day off school. What not that convenient? They took the day off school to let their opinions be known about global warming to the politicians who had to go to work. 
I'm sure. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was a very heartfelt protest by the five, the six, the ten, the twelve-year-olds who made their own signs at home. Very colourful signs that were captured by all the cameras. I'm sure it was one of those things. We will get into that. Java Unfiltered says, "You are right. So many people are squashing creativity. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that's the thing that needs to be protected." That's that's the thing that sets us apart from everyone else, right? Now we can have the the kinds of discussions about, um, you know, ideological discussions. What's the right way to go? Even politics. What policy's good? What policy's bad? That that's all kind of in the wash. But the thing that sets us apart, the thing that propels us into the stratosphere, is literally the the, the very dimly flickering flame that's within every human soul. That ability to create. And, you know, I made the point in that podcast. Sorry to go back to it. I made the point in that podcast. Have you ever heard the term walk a mile in another man's shoes? Well, now you would be banned off social media if you walked a mile in another man's shoes because you would be culturally appropriating sacred footwear or something, right? We used to celebrate the fact that we could write stories from perspectives other than our own and present those stories. And those stories could be a vehicle for some kind of positive force or negative. And, you know, it could be an emotional roller coaster, ups and downs. But now that's, that's taboo. That's not to be done. And that, I think, is an absolute scandal and a blight on Western civilization as it stands right now. It's just just one man's opinion. Should it be a kilometre in another man's shoes? Well, yes, potentially. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Thank you for not culturally appropriating the metric system. We appreciate it. Makes more sense. Makes more sense to us. So, all right. Now, the Laura Luma stuff, I've thought about it in a couple of ways. I've thought about it in a couple of ways, and I'm not even really sure how to begin because there are so many angles to this. Um, you know, I was talking with a friend, someone I consider a friend, um, before the show started. Um, and you know, they came from a different angle on this. They saw it a different way, but you know, we disagree. Um, it's an intellectual discussion to a degree. So first, before we... Before we do the Luma thing, I want to set some ground rules. And these are ground rules that I have set for discussions on just about every Periscope. And I know it's kind of dumb setting this ground rule over and over again. You guys who are regulars will know it. By the way, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, Podbean, I nearly forgot to plug. See, I'm fucking terrible at plugging. I cannot plug. I am a bad plugger. Contrary to James R's, you know... James R's accusations, I am a terrible plugger. I don't know anything about plugging. Media, but, or anything in between. Very bad plugger. Um, So if you want to check out the podcast, hit up iTunes or Podbean. Just look for The Daily Boogie. If you want to become a supporter, please head over to patreon.com forward slash boogie bumper. You don't have to. And, of course, if you want to join in on the conversation, call me all kinds of insults, all that kind of shit, just head over to Twitter at Boogie Bumper. Okay. Don't talk about Fight Club. So the rules the rules are, are like this. When when we analyze things that happen in the political sphere and the media sphere and the way these two spheres integrate, 
if you want to have a conversation about what's right and what's wrong, you're more than welcome to it. That's totally fine. We've done this before with, you know, remember migrant with kids in cages. With Melania Trump's, we did a rhetorical and media analysis of Melania Trump's visit to, you know, a quote-unquote detention centre on the border, and we discussed who won the PR battle. Who won the PR battle? Was it the Democrats who were banging on the door of the detention centre, screaming, demanding access? Or was it Melania Trump sitting around with, you know, a group of people who dedicate their lives to making illegal immigrant children feel better and clothing them and feeding them and patting their heads while they go to sleep and having that discussion in front of the camera. So the discussion about whether it's right or wrong, the particular policy, doesn't really particularly interest me. That's not my lane. If you want to have the moral argument, by all means, go for it. So this is the way I come at the Laura Luma thing. This Texas blue Philly's in the house. He's he's in already. He's straight away. He's in. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Philly. Wouldn't be, <laughs> it wouldn't be the same without you in your all caps, mate. Thanks for joining us. So, if you want to have a discussion about whether it's right or wrong for somebody to be banned on Twitter, go for it. But that's not what we're analysing here, Franklin. Thanks for joining us. If you want to have a discussion about uh, you know, is it wrong that the social media companies have so much power? Is there bias? Is it, is it, is it, if you want to come in and throw something at me like, are you saying it's right that a Jewish activist could be banned, but these anti Jewish people are allowed? That's, that's beneath me. Sorry. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. You're saying it's right or it's wrong. And you're more than welcome to talk about whether it's right or wrong. But what are we, what's the discussion we're having here? What underlies the right and the wrong? Because you know better than anybody else that sometimes doing the right thing doesn't necessarily mean that it's effective. Just because you're morally in the right doesn't mean that you can't be portrayed as wrong. And if that wasn't true, then all of your political opponents who also believe that they're morally in the right would never lose. If it was true, you would always win. They would never win. And of course, reality doesn't work that way. So if you want to have the discussion about whether it's right or wrong or feelings-based stuff like that, by all means, go for it. But that's not what we're going to do here. So that's, that's your trigger warning. So, like I said, I have thought about how to come at this and there's so many angles to this thing, and it's an open-ended discussion. By all means, we can debate it. Like I'm, you know, I'm not some kind of protest whisperer. So, I thought I'd start with like a bit of a memoir. And if you're not interested, by all means, come back in a few minutes, just to open up and try to, because because it, it is such a deep-ranging discussion with so many angles about whether it's effective or not. So it reminded me of something actually that happened when I was a younger younger guy and there was a protest in the city where I live and let's say some people there were charged with observing this protest, some people. <laughs> and in this role of observation, uh, it's not in a law and order capacity, put it that way. 
in this role of observation, uh, it's your your duty to manage optics. So, for example, you understand who's at the front of the march, who's at the sides of the march. You understand at all times where the cameras are. Now, you could either be observing on behalf of the protest march or observing to the negative, meaning you're looking for gaps in the way that they're presenting themselves to the media and to the public for you to exploit. Again, right or wrong, we're talking about effectiveness. You shouldn't be doing that. People shouldn't be going to protest marches if they don't agree. Why are people trying to disrupt protest marches? That's wrong. That's that's immoral. Fine. Want to have that discussion? By all means, go for it. But I'm going to sail right past that shit because it happens. So this particular march was a pro-Palestinian march and there was about a thousand people there, roughly. I mean, give or take. Now... Anybody who has any kind of experience uh, dealing with these particular marches knows that uh, oftentimes the pro-Palestinian march, although there are a lot of people there who are genuinely just marching for pro-Palestine, what the left uh, activist groups are very good at is mobilising other people to join in on the march in order to inflate numbers. So, you know, for example, um, just because a march is coming from a particular viewpoint or a particular political angle, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody there is, you know, for or against that particular thing. And often these things are utilised by very, you know, you know, very smart people who have very good networks of people that they can summon at the drop of a hat in order to present a particular face to the media and to the public because they always talk about stuff like strength in numbers. So as an observer at this particular event, you might notice that there are a lot of pro-Palestinian flags and signs. And of course, the the best wedge that you have against a pro-Palestinian march, if you are someone on the opposition is their stand against Israel, which is obvious. And again, I'm not getting into whether Israel's good or bad or whether Palestine's good or bad. That's your discussion. That's not mine. But that would be your obvious attack point. So what you would do is observe. You would already have this planned. You would know where the media is going to be and you would know whereabouts on the route of the march they would get the best wide shots of the marches. And you would make sure, if you were observing the march, that you would inject various like anti-Israel or you know anti-Jewish flags or signs into the crowd in order to be captured by the camera, which would then be played later on the news, unbeknownst to the people who are actually marching at the time. Do you see what I'm saying? So at then at that point, you not only nullify the effectiveness of the original rally, you also uh, negatively associate any imagery of the rally to the people at the rally, right? Because those images are the ones that are going to be remembered. Those images are the ones that are going to be blown up. Those images are the ones that are going to be put on the front page of the paper, not the pro-Palestine stuff. Because, again, um, if you're talking about a march, you very you very rarely will you see a march that's anti-something because anti-something marches don't work. 
So if people want to march against, say, you know, censorship, it's very difficult. It's not as easy as marching for tolerance or for diversity. Do you see what I'm saying here? The dynamic is different. So what you have to do is turn um, the positive message of your opponent into a negative, and you do that however you possibly can. But what we're talking about here is a march of a thousand people. Now, a thousand, a thousand people who are wrong can look right if they're presented a certain way. But what does one person who's right, they can be made to look wrong very, very, very easily because it's just one person, regardless, again, of whether they are right or wrong. So it's all about effectiveness. Are you effective or not? One of the main concerns I have with what Laura Luma did today, and again, I'm not arguing whether she's right or wrong, is that a lot of people have invested a lot of time in in a sort of mid to long term strategy, a mid to long a long term strategy where they have successfully, rather successfully, um, they've been able to paint a picture that the the kind of uh, left-wing activist antics, like screaming, getting in front of doorways, uh, you know, screaming into the cameras, they have, been, they have been very successful at making those traditional left-wing activist tactics uncool to an extent. You know, you no longer get applauded if you're screaming at the, at the doors of the Supreme Court. You get mocked, you get maligned. And what that does then has it has a flow-on effect whereby you create a straw man using the people that are doing this. You isolate them first. You create a straw man and you then present that straw man in place of somebody who is formidable on the left, right? So if you've got someone that's very effective, someone that's a formidable uh, media presence or something, you associate the antics of the people screaming at the sky and, and scratching at the door. You construct a straw man and you place it in front of anybody who's actually really good at what they do because then that, that creates a wall that they have to climb over. Do you see what I'm saying here? Let me, let me put it this way. And I was saying this to a friend earlier on in a private room. So are you familiar with um, Plato's theory of the forms? I know it's old, but it's kind of new at the same time. So a basic rundown of Plato's theory of the forms is when you think of an apple, you think of an apple in it, you know, when it's ripe, ready to eat, a gorgeous looking apple and like, you know, in its, in its perfect form, literally. But an apple has many, many forms. So an apple is a seed, it's a, it's a, it's a sapling, it's a plant, it's a tree, uh, it's a small you know, fruit, it's a ripe apple, it's a rotting core on the ground. All of that is still an apple. But when we think of an apple, we think of it in its, you know, its pure, perfect form. And that's what frames our reality around what an apple is, what an orange is, what a banana is, what a phone is, right? So if you extend that theory outwards, what people have been very successful in doing over the last couple of years is 
you know, think of left-wing protester or, you know, think of Democrat. Now, you, you can find it very, very difficult to get people to admit that there are Democrats out there now after a few years of this tactic. You can find, you can get people, uh, it's very difficult to get people to admit that not all Democrats are the crazy protesters that scream at the sky. That's been a deliberate strategy to magnify the crazies, put them in front due to their behavior, put them in front of anything formidable, any, you know, formidable argument and make that the argument instead of what actually is behind it. Do you see what I'm saying? Theory of the forms. So I would ask you, what's the difference, say, between a thousand people who might be wrong marching and acting crazy or one person who might be right acting crazy. Let me show you the difference. So if you get uh, 10,000 people marching on the street saying, for example, that Milo should be banned, it will look a certain way. What if you get one person in front of a doorway saying that Milo should be banned? It's going to look like this. Oh, my God, I believe in equal rights. Oh, my God, I believe that. I don't believe in equal rights. Homophobia shouldn't be allowed. Oh, my God, I believe that white men shouldn't dictate a fucking woman's place in the world. You fucking douchebags. You misogynistic pieces of shit. I believe that Twitter is anti-Semitic. I believe that I am being unfairly targeted. How could you let anti-Jewish people like Louis Farrakhan on Twitter and ban me? I am standing up for free speech. I believe that I am being treated unfairly. She might be right. She might be right. But if you've got a thousand people versus 10,000 people or a thousand people, it makes it a bit more difficult. So that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about effectiveness, right? The other thing too is, okay, so it, it all depends on what the objective is. So what... What is Laura Loomer's objective for the action? You know, people people are saying she's brave, she's got big balls, she's doing something. Hey, fine. That's all fine. That's all good. I'm not operating on that track. You can only say whether it was um whether it was a win or a loss once you ascertain what the objective is. If you don't fulfill the objective, then it's a loss. If you do fulfill the objective, it was a win. So let me put this to you. If the objective was to become the trending uh, the trending hashtag on Twitter, she won. She absolutely nailed it. She dominated. She kicked ass. And, you know, to be fair, I do find it highly, 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 highly amusing that somebody who is banned off Twitter becomes the hashtag on Twitter. I think I think the same thing happened to Milo, if I'm not wrong. I think after he was banned, it was the hashtag on Twitter. But 
Is that the objective? Then it's a win. Now, what was the objective for the hashtag on Twitter? It was obviously to let Milo back on Twitter. Now, that objective was a complete failure, right? (laughs) He's still not on Twitter. What, over 12 months later? Is it over 12 months now? So if the, if the objective is creating the hashtag, then it's a win. But if the objective is creating the hashtag in order to make something else happen, then it's a complete loss. Do you see what I'm saying here? So it all depends on what your objective is. Now, I don't think that anybody's objective is to... I don't think anybody would be shallow enough in this space. You're all intelligent people. And I think you know what I'm saying here. I don't think anybody besides people who, you know, want to do things like maybe piss into their own mouth or do cat videos or something, somebody out there, it might be their dream, it might be their, you know, it might be their life's work to create a trending hashtag. Fine. If that's your objective in whatever you're doing, if your goal is to create a trending hashtag, then fine. But I tend to think people who operate in the area of politics and political activism and alternative media, and I hate that term, alternative media. To me, it's all just media. It's all media. There is no such thing as alternative media. But I tend to think people who operate in that space who might be very intelligent and, again, might be fighting for the right, the quote-unquote, the right cause, um, I, I fail to see that they would be doing it to create a hashtag. For me, for those people, I suspect creating the hashtag is a means to another end. Does that make sense? Like, nobody sets out to create a hashtag. You create a hashtag to do something else, right? So, what is the something else? Now, people talk about things like awareness campaigns. Fine. It's it's a similar thing, right? Now... I tend to think that people who champion and want awareness campaigns are, you know, either very, you know, very well-meaning people or perhaps very naive people because the object of the awareness campaign is never the awareness campaign. The object of the awareness campaign is to change something else. The reason that politicians use things like awareness campaigns is because they know that the people who want the awareness campaign think that the awareness campaign is the objective. Hey, we got our awareness campaign off the ground. We won. The politicians gave us a million dollars for our awareness campaign. It's a big victory. From that point on, it doesn't matter a jot if nothing else changes. It doesn't matter if nothing changes to those people. To those people, they've already won because they got the awareness campaign. To some people, it won't matter beyond the hashtag. We already won. I'm already seeing it. People are cheering and clapping and saying, this was, this, was hashed, this was trending on Twitter. Great. But what's the point? What is the point of getting the hashtag trending on Twitter? There's got to be some other objective, right? If the objective of the action is to get the, hashtagging, uh, the hashtag trending on Twitter, then it's a success. If the objective goes beyond the hashtag on Twitter, then we don't know. And we don't know what the objective is. It's two totally different things. So whilst, you know, I absolutely find it, 
on multi level on mul- on multiple levels humorous that somebody who was banned off Twitter could you know have their name trending on Twitter because they were banned on Twitter. I do remark that you know I have to point out that the exact same thing happened to Milo Yiannopoulos, but the point of getting the hashtag was to get Milo back on Twitter, and that was an, a complete and utter failure. Didn't happen. There is, you see, the objective is to make a stand. But again, like Joe, with respect, making a stand is not in of itself an objective. You make a stand for something else to happen. Like nobody just makes a stand. Like I'm, I'm, what are you doing out here? I'm making a stand. What for? To make a stand. Nobody makes a stand for no, like that's never the end goal. That's never the end game. If it is the end game, then buy, go outside and make a stand. Make a stand. You, people make stands every day on the subway. People on the subway march around with, you know, placards like, uh, what do you call those those boards that they wear front and back? They're making a stand. You know, Jesus saves and they're walking around shouting on the streets of New York. They're making a stand. Is, is everybody now converted to Christianity and does everybody now believe that the end is nigh? No. But that's their objective, to convince people of that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be making a stand in the first place. How about telling people, how about telling President he couldn't block people? Well, that's, an, that's another discussion as well. Tom Chatelet, thanks for joining us. Notoriety is capital. The right has no stored capital capital for activism that's an absolutely true comment and i agree 100 percent. and i think we've had this discussion before tom but for the benefit of everyone else i would say the fundamental problem with the right has always been how do you get people who are against state action to you know motivate and mobilize in a in the same way that the left does it's not like you're trying to get it's not like you're trying to um implant Alinsky tactics onto, you know, a like a, a clean slate here. You're actually trying to get people to fundamentally change their, you know, their basic philosophy of how they view the government in their everyday life. It's much more difficult. Don't don't like don't think you're a pioneer here trying to get the right to adopt the tactics of the left. People on the right have been trying to do that for fifty fucking years. I remember watching an um an interview with uh, David Horowitz, who was um, a left-wing radical, he at one time I think he was the accountant for the Black Panthers. Believe it or not, he was raised by communists. Uh, he was a an, a devout communist, and you know he had his you know he's, he had his come to Jesus moment, if that's what you want to call it. And he then found himself on the conservative side of the ledger. And for the life of me, I can't remember what where the interview was where I saw it, but I remember what he said. He said, you know, when he first started working on the right, uh, he would ask people, hey, where's our ground game? And they would look at him and say, what do you mean? And he's like, where's, where's our groups? Where's our, um, you know, where's our direct funding models? Like, how do, how, do we, how do we get this group to feed into that group to feed in the gra- into that group to turn into a ground game? How do we, where's, where's our mobilization? Like, who's organizing our mobilization here? And they laughed at him <laughs> and they said, David, <laughs> you're, you're on the conservative side now. We don't have ground game. We don't have mobilization. We don't have direct funding models. We have people, you know, 
in middle America who go to work and pay their taxes and don't want anything to do with anybody who marches in the street. You've, you've stuffed. We don't do that shit here. So, and you know, he's been, he might say he's been fighting a losing battle ever since. So this, this idea isn't new. Now, where I will give some ground in this argument, and let's, let's get a debate going. Throw shit at me. I don't care. Why not? Let's burn the whole show on this. I don't, I don't give a fuck at this point. <laughs> Although at some point I do have to show you the worst intro video that I've ever made for a segment for Don Lemon's new segment. Because we do so much about Brian Stelter, but we never gave Don Lemon a specific intro video. So now we've got a new segment called Sour Lemons, Sour Lemon, and I've got a nice little nifty video for you. That's very, very dumb. It's very poorly produced. So, how do you how do you get people on the right to mobilise? Now, one of the other issues I have with what Laura did in this respect was okay. So, if the now what is one of the fundamental axioms upon which the conservative side has been able to pick apart? And again, I f- I feel like I'm I'm not saying like you know, years worth of um, strategy and memeing has been undone by this one particular action. I'm not saying that at all. You know, I gave the example of, you know, highlighting one crazy person and making them a straw man for everybody else on that particular side. And that's been very, very effective over the last few years. If you don't believe me, I I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) But the other uh, strategic attack, uh, attack point that the right has you know, gain some ground in. And I think even Lucifer Sam will agree with this because he's a Democrat who also hates this particular uh, premise that his party has adopted more so than the conservatives. And this is the idea of identity politics. Now, would uh, Loomer's stand have, would it have been more effective if she didn't make it about her Jewish identity? You tell me. What if she was just there saying that, I've been banned off Twitter. What? Why is it fair that I'm banned off Twitter, but you're letting these people on? You know, if I'm offensive, why are these people not offensive? But she decided not to do that, and that's fine. She's, you know, she knows more about this stuff than I do. But uh, when she makes it about her Jewish identity, she takes away one of the major, you know, attack points that the right has gained over the last few years, which is what attacking identity politics. So she's saying, you're anti-Jewish, you're anti-Semitic. Now, I want you to think about this. It wasn't all that long ago when, you know, a lot of people on the right were saying how ridiculous it is that if somebody was to criticise, say, George Soros, for example, uh, they would be accused of being anti-Semitic. And everyone's like, oh, that's ridiculous, that's ridiculous. But yet here we are like a month later, three weeks later, and I guarantee you a good portion of those people are now going to turn around and say, well, if you criticise Laura Luma, you're anti-Semitic. And you're going to be left standing there in the middle going, hang on a minute, I, th- I thought we were against identity politics. So, like, is it okay now? And I've heard the argument that, okay, but you have to attack the left on their you know, the the left uses identity politics, so you have to use identity politics back. But now now what you now what you're doing is undoing years of work in pointing out how 
uh, you know, wrong and stupid and self-destructive a platform identity politics is in the first place. Now, is that a risk worth taking? I don't know. I'm open. It's an open discussion. I, I tend to fall on the side, like, you know, I tend to think there is ground to be gained there by rejecting identity politics. Even I can explain identity politics where it goes wrong. The left creates protected classes, right? So Lucifer Sam will know that even in Democrat circles, Democrat circles, Tom Shadley, would Milo have been as effective if he didn't play up his sexuality? Effective in what, though? Now, his playing up of his sexuality, like, certainly makes him very different. It makes him stand out. But what's the objective? Like, is he is he better at what he does because he's gay, right? Do you see what I'm saying here? Or is he just different enough? Is he more different than other people? Now, Milo has a very, very different mode of attack than a Laura Luma. For one, Milo Milo is an entertainer. Milo Yiannopoulos is an entertainer, someone very suave, someone very smooth. He can talk to all kinds of different people. Laura Luma's um, brand, if you want to put it that way, rightly or wrongly, is confrontational activist. And again, that, you know, that's fine. But to, you know, to say that uh, Luma using her Jewish identity is akin to Milo Yiannopoulos using his gay identity, I think you're speaking on very different different terms. To combat the narrative that the right is homophobic, but that narrative still exists, Tom. I, arguably, it exists even more. <laughs> so if, that, if the objective was to combat the narrative that the right is homophobic, then he failed dismally. You haven't changed any far-left minds in that regard. They still happily go around, you know, telling everybody that the, the conservatism is homophobic. Was it effective in, you know, some way to us, perhaps? To us. But I never thought the right was homophobic to begin with anyway. Really. I, I really, I really don't consider many people at all to be actually homophobic yeah I, I don't even think if you if you come out and say I don't like gay people I don't even think that's homophobic I'm like okay he just doesn't like you know gay people <laughs> whatever <laughs> it doesn't bother me <laughs> but you know I think I think we're dealing with very different um, subject matter here when we're when we're discussing a Milianopolis versus a Laura Luma I mean, Laura Luma's brand, like I said, is confrontational activist. She's going to be abrasive to a lot more people than a Milo Yiannopoulos is. See, Milo Yiannopoulos has that great talent of even people who hate him can still laugh at what he says. Now, people who want to um, squash Laura Luma and get her out of the picture, can any of them turn around and say, well, you know what, I really don't like Laura Luma, I don't like her tactics, but damn, she's charming and funny. She might be charming and funny. I'm not saying she's not, but that's not the image. That's not the brand that's out there, rightly or wrongly, again.
very difficult to hate somebody who can make you laugh. <laughs> right? Didn't you? See, it's difficult when folks call Jews Nazis. Like, what the hell are you supposed to do with that? <laughs> like, if you're sitting down, like, at the strategy table and you're like, okay, what's our problem here? Okay, we've got we've got a bunch of Jews that call other Jews, like this Jew, a Nazi. Like, I, I don't even know where to begin. How, do you, how the hell do you unravel that, man? <laughs> Had she claimed one issue, would that have made a difference in your opinion? Um, I, I just think it might have been more effective. More effective. Because what she's done now is given uh, an open door to the opponents here, right? Because by, even though I understand it, I understand, I understand the shock and awe value. To be honest, I, I thought it was, I, you know, on a personal level, I thought, oh, that's, that's good. But in terms of uh, effective strategy, I don't think so. If she, when she was wearing the yellow star with Yudin uh, written on it, you know, akin to what was being worn in the Jewish ghettos in the 1930s and the 40s, even though I understand the imagery and even though I know it's about impact, uh, that, that strategically that gives an opening because you can just get people turn around and say, oh, she's, she's now, you know, insulting Holocaust survivors, for example. And if the objective is to um, show everybody that the people on the right are not out to insult, you know, the Holocaust, then, like, if, if they already think she's a Nazi, then she didn't help that in that instance, right? But, it, like, again, she's out there. She's doing it. But if you're a public figure, then people are going to talk about it. So. Hmm. so I understand the impact of it, but... Was it effective or not? It's a different question. <laughs> Ducks Regis. His name is Milo. His name is Robert Paulson. How about we do this? I thought this might be fun. Let's let's have a look at the reporting. Now, to be fair, I could have you're coming full circle. We can make this entire argument about Trump, you know. Wow, I mean, right? Probably. Probably. He's he's not Jewish, a woman, or gay, though, to be fair. To be fair. <laughs> to be fair to Donald Trump. Desiree says she's Jewish. How can she be a Nazi? Well, because, you know, people are idiots. Reality doesn't matter. Truth doesn't matter. Truth doesn't matter. It was the, it was there before the genocide. It was there before the beginning. Yes, but it's it's all about association, right? Antifa the Nazis. That's fine, but you see what I'm saying here. You see the underlying point. By doing that, even though I think it's you know that's very impact. Im- the imagery is very impactful. Uh, just it just um, leaves an opportunity for a narrative on the left to be confirmed, if that makes sense. I like this comment. Conservatives are rugged individualists, so there's bound to be a bumpy road with many approaches. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And that's fundamentally why it's very difficult to get conservatives to march en masse for one particular stand or one particular, you know, item or dot point. We're here because Trump made a stand. Well, you'd still be here if Trump didn't make a stand, though, to be fair. You'd just be in a lot worse position, but you'd still be here. All right, let's let's do this. 
let's check the reporting. I thought I'd go to both ends of. I thought I'd go to both sides of the same coin. Breitbart and Huffington Post. Anybody who knows their Andrew Breitbart history knows that Andrew Breitbart used to work for Huffington Post, and Breitbart was essentially created as to be the mirror to Huffington Post. He wanted to have the Huffington Post of the conservative movement. So, you know, make of that what you will, but that's Andrew Breitbart's own words. That's his own philosophy. That's why he created Breitbart. He wanted the Huffington Post of the right. So I thought, well, let's go Breitbart and the Huffington Post then. Why not? Perfect. And just note the difference in reporting here, because, I th- again, I think it's interesting if we're talking about perspective, these are the two spin machines that you want to be assessing and seeing which 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 story is going to win the day, which truth is going to prevail. Now, in terms of the um, the Huffington Post one, I could have written this myself. <laughs> it's very lazy. It's very easy. I mean, this this headline here, people who were in the um, Trusted Verify room a few hours ago, I, or, I made that headline before it was printed. <laughs> Right-wing conspiracy uh, conspiracist Laura Loomer handcuffs herself to door of Twitter's office. Many people, people who are not banned from Twitter had a lot to say about the self-proclaimed journalist protest. So, obviously, conspiracist, right-wing conspiracist, and self-proclaimed journalist, which is interesting. I, I, you know, I didn't know that somebody else had to call you a journalist before you're actually a journalist, right? Far-right conspiracy theorist Laura Loomer handcuffed herself to the front door of Twitter's corporate offices in New York on Thursday. Twitter is upholding Sharia when they ban me for tweeting facts about Sharia law, shouted Loomer, who is Jewish and donned a yellow star of David on her jacket, which appears to suggest that losing your Twitter account is similar to the Nazi persecution of the Jews, right? Do you see what I'm saying here? Do you see how they're going to use it? Again, it's not about right and wrong. It's, a, it's about you want to leave your opponents the least amount of openings to take advantage of whatever it is that you're doing, to, to hijack your image, to hijack your optics, right? Remember the story I told you about with the march with the 1,000 people and how, you know, quote-unquote observers who may have been there at the time were able to successfully hijack that um, protest march for their own gain, to turn their positive messaging into a negative. You know, it's 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 like a it's like, it's like a kind of martial arts. You don't you don't try to um, meet the punch with equal force. You try to guide the punch further so it drags them off balance. Does that make sense? She said she will not remove the handcuffs until until Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey reinstates her account. Well, that didn't happen. So was that the objective? rebrand you exactly that didn't happen so that was the other thing too twitter was very 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 smart in the pr game they they i have to say you know twitter owned the pr problem like that laura luma came out handcuffed herself to the twitter door with the megaphone with making her stand making her political stand right Twitter came out and said, we're not going to press charges. She can stay there as long as she wants. Now, at that point, um, they win. If, if Laura Luma actually gets arrested, she wins. An arrest would have been perfect in the optics game. Sorry to say. It, it's, it sounds redundant, like it sounds counterintuitive. But if you actually think about it, 
the imagery of Laura Loomer being uh, unchained from the door and handcuffed by police and put into a police car and being driven away, that's then the story. That becomes the story. She wins. Because, I mean, look at what Twitter have done and you can't even protest anymore on the street if you're a conservative and a Jew, right? She would win that bit. But because Twitter came out and said, hey, you know, we're not going to... No, she didn't get arrested. Because Twitter came out and said, you can stay there as long as you want, we're not going to press charges, then that puts the ownership back on her. So in that sense, the, the event only stops when she stops it. When she stops it, not Twitter. Do you see what I'm saying? And when she stops it, I mean, it wouldn't matter if she was there for a day, a week, a month. She could be there for a year. At the point that she decides to not be there anymore, guess what the, what the, what the spin machine does? They all turn around and say, the far-right conspiracy theorist decided to end her one-man, her one man, you know, her one-woman crusade against perceived bias. And along those lines, it would go. See, what Twitter did here is um, they make this announcement. She then realises that there's really no point in staying there because they're not going to stop her. She's not going to get the confrontation that she wants. So she's going to have to stop at some time. And at that moment when she stops, uh, the very next day, yeah, they cut it. They, she asked them to cut the handcuffs off. So at that point, um, you know, Twitter's already done the, they've already done the made the first move in the PR game. They've said, no, we're not going to charge her. She can stay as long as she wants. So what's then Twitter already has a follow-up PR strategy at that point. And here's what it might be. They might I'm I'm guessing that it's going to be along these lines. At some point Twitter will put out a press release if they haven't already, might be tomorrow, might be tomorrow morning so everyone can wake up fresh to it on a Friday morning, right? But Twitter will put out a press release saying, uh, we don't, you know, we stand by our policies, we stand by our code of conduct, and we respect everybody's right to protest, which is why we're not going to charge Laura Luma. Something like that. I mean, you can see it already, can't you? <laughs> so that was the difficult part in that respect. CNN's Andrew Kaczynski reported Thursday afternoon that Luma, uh, Luma said she would stay handcuffed all night but was getting cold and no longer has the key. Now, the reason that they put that particular quote in there, getting cold and no longer has the key, they're trying to portray Laura as weak, that she doesn't have, uh, you know, the guts or the gumption or whatever to stay there as long as it takes, which then creates, um, you know, a narrative that uh, she doesn't really mean it. She's not doing it for the right reasons. She's she's not really trying to change anything. She's doing this for attention. Now, that's not what I'm saying, but that's that's the that's the reasoning behind writing it that way, if that makes sense. Police have told Luma that Twitter won't be pressing charges and that she can stay chained to the door as long as she wants. And here's some of the comments from Twitter. Make of this what you will. I don't really put much much stock in Twitter comments, to be fair. For me, Twitter comments are basically like uh, the most shallow, ignorant. It's the most it's the most pure distilled form of the lowest rung of 
the conversational ladder thanks to the character limit. Do you know what I mean? Um, Will Somner wrote, Yes, Laura Luma is wearing a Jewish star to protest being banned from Twitter. I think, you know, like I said, I agree with the impact that it made, but I don't think it was necessarily the right thing to do. A spokesperson for Twitter told HuffPost by email, the account holder was suspended for violating our policies. We apply the Twitter rules impartially and not based on ideology. What else were you, what, what, what are you expecting them to say at that point? What else are they going to say? <laughs> are they going to, with, with this, with the cameras rolling, was the expectation that somebody from Twitter like Jack Dorsey would come out onto the street and say, you're right, we're wrong. We got it all wrong. We're sorry. We're going to reverse everything that we've ever done. That was never going to happen. Never. Can't happen. People have been painted into corners now. They can't, they can't go back on what they said. Otherwise, it's the end for them. People will protect their little, their little patch once they've created one. In addition to shouting things like, this is a human rights issue and we are not Russian bots. See very selected quotes here. Obviously, Luma also held up several signs outside the Twitter offices. One sign featured the tweet that got her banned from using social media platform earlier this month. The tweet that disparaged Democrat rep-elect Ilan Omar, calling Omar, quote, anti-Jewish and saying that she is, quote, pro-Sharia, referring to Islamic law derived from the Quran. I like how they actually have to explain what Sharia is in the post. <laughs> Isn't it ironic how the Twitter movement used to celebrate women, LGBTQ and minorities is a picture of Ilan Omar, tweeted Luma. Ilan is pro Sharia, Ilan is pro FGM under Sharia, homosexuals are impressed and killed, women are abused and forced to wear the hijab, Ilan is anti-Jewish. Luma, who often included anti-Muslim rhetoric on her Twitter page, told the Daily Beast that her ban from the platform would not be the end of her. Again, the use of self-proclaimed here. Self-proclaimed citizen journalist is apparently joining a class action lawsuit against Twitter, posting on her website Thursday that she'll be a lead plaintiff. She writes that the lawsuit is against, quote, leftist social media companies, Google, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Apple, and Instagram for agreeing among themselves and acting as a monopoly to restrain trade and discriminate against conservatives. Well, you know, that might be a worthwhile cause. Might be a very worthwhile cause. Did, did today's actions, if you're if you're planning a lawsuit where you're going to be the lead plaintiff, would today's actions um, help that in a court case or would it diminish you in front of a, say, a talented lawyer for the opposition? And one must assume that <clears throat> if you're taking companies like Twitter and Google and Facebook to court, they can probably ap- uh, afford very, very talented lawyers. Just throwing that out there. I am talking about the thought wall later. <laughs> Macy's mindset. Thanks for joining us. That's a blast from the past. We are doing thought audit because oh, I didn't even know what it was three hours ago. And then I, I read about it. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> so, of course, we're doing it. So let's jump to the other side of the same coin. Breitbart. Let's look at the difference here, the difference in presentation. Brad Everly, BE from the, U, from the Earth Report. Thanks for joining us, my friend. Laura Luma chains herself to Twitter HQ to protest hate speech hypocrisy. 
Conservative activist Laura Loomer protested Twitter on Thursday afternoon by chaining herself to the front door of the company's office in New York City, demanding free speech. Now, see already the way Breitbart presents it to their audience. Hate speech in commas, obviously, because hate speech is a notion. It's not an actual thing, right? Taking from the Breitbart point of view. Uh, Demanding free speech. So it's a free speech issue, right? The, the buzz, the buzz, the buzz topics, the buzzwords that would get folks like us up and about, that would get us marching. I threw away the key, uh, the key and I'm here for the millions of conservatives who have been censored by Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg, shouted Luma. Note how they use a very different, they use very different quotes in the Breitbart article than they do the Huffington Post article. In the Huffington Post article, they quoted, uh, where is it? This is a human rights issue and we are not Russian bots. <clears throat> That's what they decided to quote in the Huffington Post. In Breitbart, I threw away the key and I'm here for the millions of conservatives who have been censored by Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg. Again, we're assessing which, which truth becomes the truth. Which story becomes the story. Which narrative dominates from here on out. Which one's got the more powerful message? Which narrative has the more powerful message? If you're, if you're being objective about it, forget about what you want. Forget about what you think is right. Forget about what you think is wrong. Little things like does the imagery of the yellow star on the jacket help Luma or does it give her an opponents a chance to attack her, right? Does the Twitter response help Luma or does it put them in an advantageous position? long-term, right? Who's going to win the narrative battle over the next 24, 48 hours? It's different. That's a different discussion to what you want and what you think and what you believe. That's a different discussion to what you think is right or wrong. That's a different discussion to what you personally think is fair or unfair. That's why I say today, and that's why I was told many, many years ago by someone who was very, very intelligent in this area, that forget about what you think about forget about what you think of as right and wrong if you're going to if you're going to you know if you're going to achieve any kind of outcome it's all about whether you're effective or ineffective that's the only thing that matters right wrong good bad truth lie all of that comes second to are you effective or not effective sorry really all that matters this isn't just about me this is about the millions of conservatives i want uh, people to start speaking up about the censorship and silencing of conservatives in america with one hand chained to the door luma held in her other hand giant print out of her tweet that had been deemed in violation of twitter's rules against hateful conduct causing her suspension from the platform everything i said was factually correct uh affirmed luma of her tweet Luma also had her uh, had with her a printout of a tweet by Farrakhan, who still has an account on Twitter, which read, I am not anti-Semite, I am anti-Termite. As the crowd of onlookers grew larger, police officers began to barricade the sidewalk, and a woman approached Luma to ask if she was able to unchain herself or if she would need police to cut her free. I wish I could say something, but Twitter and Facebook will not let me speak, responded Luma. You have to take it up with them, they won't let me speak. 
According to people on the scene, the NYPD has left the scene and Twitter is not pressing charges as long as Luma does not block people from leaving or entering the building. There's a tweet there from Ali. So you can see the, the different kinds of presentation. Now, see, Lucifer's taking the uh, the cynical view, which is fine, you know. Um, again, it's all about what what are your objectives? Who knows? <clears throat> Who knows? But whatever the objective is, will it be effective or not? That's a different story. And I think if I'm viewing the events today purely objectively... And again, I, I come from a very, I come from a different mindset. I'm not someone that um, advocates this kind of activism purely because I don't think it's it's the best. I don't think it's the most effective way to go about things. I could, I I might be wrong, but as someone who has again observed over the last few years at least um, the effectiveness of memeing people who who uh, engage in this kind of activist behaviour into oblivion, then I would say, you know, raising awareness. It's an awareness campaign, Sandra. Well, here's maybe something. <clears throat> uh, anybody who needed to be aware was already aware. Anybody who cares already knew. Anybody who is not already interested in Twitter or Laura Luma doesn't know any different. And it all depends on who wins the narrative war, what kind of awareness is raised, right? So for the next 24, the next 24 to 48 hours are crucial from both sides. Because the winner of that will determine what kind of awareness is raised from this. Does that make sense? It won't be you. It won't be me. It won't be, you know, any of us individually who decides what the message is two days from now. It's out of our hands. I, I tend to fall on, again, like I said, I'm... Laying it all out. I tend to fall on the more sceptical side. I think um, the star was a misstep, even though I appreciate the impact of the imagery. And I think Twitter handled themselves rather rather well and kind of owned the PR battle. So from that, um, you know, to use a colloquialism, she's pushing shit uphill with a toothpick to win the narrative battle. She might do it. She might do it. I'm aware that I cannot type, Key Wizard. <laughs> she might do it, but she might not. It all depends. Awareness of sanctioned hate speech on Twitter, perhaps. Most See, this is the other thing too. Um, those of us who are engaged in social media tend to, in some respects, overplay the significance that social media has in the lives of people, in the lives of people that we need to be engaged who aren't on social media. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying that social media isn't effective. I'm not saying that social media isn't a weapon. I'm not saying that social media can't be used um, for what you need it to do. But if you're 
Congress is already considering the censorship problem. James R., does this help or hurt in that setting? That's that's essentially what we're discussing here, isn't it? Like, that's that's really what it boils down to, isn't it, brother? It's whether or not, again, like like I said, it doesn't, unfortunately, this this is a truthism. You've, you've, had, you've heard of this concept before, truthism. This is a truthism in politics and optics and PR and activism. It, it doesn't, I can only tell you, it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. It doesn't matter, matter if you're in the good or the bad. It doesn't matter if it's true or untrue. The only thing that matters is effectiveness versus ineffectiveness. That's it. Because nothing changes unless you're effective. Nothing. Whether you're right or wrong, good or bad, telling the truth or telling a lie, if you're effective at doing it, you win. <laughs> it's, it's the brutal reality. I forget which uh, American politician spoke about it. I, was it, was it in, you guys will correct me, was it Newt Gingrich that said something about, uh, you know, making sausages? Most people don't want to know how sausage gets made. You know, you know the, um, you know the analogy I'm talking about, right? Like people, people want to know, people want to do politics, but they don't want to know how sausages get made kind of thing. Like if you saw what was in the sausage, you wouldn't want to fucking eat it. So, wow. Anything else on this? We're an hour and 20 minutes in. There you go. (laughs) That just fucking flew by. I do want to. I do want to lighten it up. So you know what? Um, any further comments, please direct on Twitter at Boogie Bumper, and please donate, Sam. Please donate. <laughs> please donate. <laughs> Sorry, had to. Had to. Uh, let me show you the crappy little intro video that I've made for uh, our new segment, Sour Lemon. Sorry. I know it's terrible, isn't it? (laughs) Do do you want to see it one more time? Let's do it one more time. Here we go. Got to do this first. One one more time for the new segment. Sour lemon. Lemon tree, very pretty, and the lemon flowery sweet. But the fruit of the poor lemon is impossible to eat. Lemon tree, very pretty, and the lemon flowery sweet. But the fruit of the poor Let's do Sour Lemon. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the new segment, Sour Lemon. Why should Brian Stelter get all the fun? 
let's see. Just because, remember, just because you're a lemon doesn't mean you have to be sour. Let's rock and roll. Let's see what Don's got to say. There's really no other way to say this. No other way. Oh. The president of the United States is having a meltdown. Ah! Yes, again. <laughs> and the reason is very clear. Robert Mueller is getting under his skin. Ah. The president, using an interview... That, that sounded... Do you know that quote that he made, um, was it like a year ago? It, it was said in the exact same delivery. You could do better, Boogie says, since I... <laughs> you could do better, mate. It, really? Do you think so? It's not my best? Are you sure? Are you sure? Let's play it again. We'll just... Let's just make sure. I think it's fantastic. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's wonderful. It's the best little intro clip that's ever been made. But do you reckon, do you remember, um, I think it was like 12, 18 months ago, the president of the United States is racist. Anybody who's watched Blue Room knows that because he's got it on his, um, you know, on his pad, on his soundboard. The president of the United States is racist. It's the exact same delivery. The president of the United States is having is, a meltdown. Ah, meltdown. Yes, again. And the reason is very clear. Robert Mueller is getting under his skin. The president, using an interview today with his hometown paper, the New York Post, to send a public message to his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, a pardon is not off the table, saying this, and I quote, I wouldn't take it off the table. Why would I take it off the table? (laughs) The president has been dangling a pardon for Manafort for a while, but the timing of this tells you a whole lot. Coming just two days after uh, Mueller accused Manafort of lying repeatedly to him, See, I like that. The timing of this tells us a whole lot. Well, first of all, I would suspect that the timing of the... Like, you could tell from the the quote there, that wasn't just made in a vacuum. Trump was obviously answering a question. And the question must have been, is the Manafort pardon off the table? And he said, <laughs> I assume... Why would I take the Manafort pardon off the table? Answering a question with a question, right? To be fair, that's what that's what I would do. Trump has figured out very quickly that if you're to be a successful politician, then you don't really deal in absolutes. No politician really deals in absolutes. He just does it more directly. So let's say, just say I'm a talented, um, you know, progressive politician or a talented uh, Republican politician, and I'm asked the same question in the same position, where Donald Trump, in his very, like, blue-collar language, in his his very blue-collar mode of communication to the electorate, he just says, I'm not taking it off the table. Why would I take it off the table? If you were a talented politician, and I mean politician, Right? I'm not saying he's not talented in other areas, but if you're a talented politician, you might say something along the lines of, well, we, we, um, we're very eager to see the evidence that the Mueller team has collected 
and we will be discussing all possible options at that time. <laughs> right? Now, every no politician at all in the same situation, no smart politician would ever come out and say, oh, pardon's definitely off the table now because they're not idiots. An idiot would say a pardon is absolutely off the table now, but, you know, because they're an idiot, they don't understand that at some point in the future they might want to give the guy a pardon and then they can't do that because they open themselves to political attack from their opponents. I beg your beg your pardon, says Robert Brown. <laughs> I beg your pardon. So, you know, Trump says kind of any kind of non-answer. Exactly, Kimmy. That's this is what politicians deal in. It's what it's all about. Congressman, 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 how do you plan on addressing the concerns in your uh, district that people that people have been asking for, you know, this particular highway to be upgraded. Well, let me tell you, nobody's working harder in the district than me and my team. We are engaging with all of the relevant stakeholders and we will absolutely be presenting um, a, a fantastic solution to the electorate once we have gone through all of the necessary discussions that we need to have with our voters. Oh, well done. Bravo. He's a, he's such a leader. What a great politician. Sir, sir, is the Paul Manafort <clears throat> is the Paul Manafort pardon now off the table? Well, I don't want to engage in ongoing commentary about an open investigation, but what I will say is uh, our team is very much looking forward to sitting down with the Mueller team and seeing exactly what uh you know, what can be done in order to present the best possible option to the American people, because now is the time that we need to get all of um, all of all of the potentially divisive rhetoric out of out of the news. Now is the time for us to come together. <laughs> ten minutes later, ten minutes later, the people on MSNBC are going, oh, wow, what a fucking fantastic leader this guy is. This guy is absolutely amazing. How do we ever live without this without this politician? <laughs> See, once upon a time, the journalists used to be the most sceptical of the political language, and now the journalists are the ones that push it the most. Have you ever considered that? <clears throat> you never have to wonder what the president is thinking. No, you don't. Well, I get, you do. You do, to be fair. I think I think you absolutely do have to wonder sometimes what Donald Trump is thinking because he doesn't tell you. <laughs> but rather than come up with some kind of bullshit long-winded reason for not telling you, he just comes out and says, "I'm not going to tell you that." <laughs> Remember? That was like a key pillar of his campaign. He's like, "I'm not going to tell you what we're doing. Why the hell would I do that? That's dumb." <laughs> <clears throat> Which again, I think is like a a big flaw a big flaw on the Democrat side of the aisle in that they can't identify what's appealing about that. You know, for generations, for decades, um, people have been somewhat trained to accept blowhearted and blowhardiest. People have been somewhat trained to accept on, would you say, like a subconscious level, the ridiculousness of political language. And it's, and it's so much so that you don't actually... 
you can watch a full interview with another politician and they'll use the you know the the workshopped political speak to such a to such an expert level that at the end of the interview you don't really remember anything that was said you don't remember anything you get an impression <clears throat> you get an impression of what was said but that's the whole point the whole point is to make ambiguous rhetorical whisper ambiguous rhetorical sweet nothings into your ear so you believe something is happening or you believe they said something without them actually saying it without them actually doing it Can you promise to build that freeway on time? I promise that we will talk with all of the relevant stakeholders and make sure that all of the appropriate building blocks are in place to provide the best possible solution to the electorate when it's needed. Everyone watching, everyone watching the interview says, yay, we're getting a new freeway. <laughs> Little do they know, 20 years from now, they're still going to be bitching about not having a freeway. And they, didn't, and they don't even know. They don't even know about it. No positions taken on anything. Oh, of course not. Politicians hate taking positions on things. I mean, aside from the obvious ones, and if you think about modern-day politics, what positions do they take? They're not actually really positions. They're bumper stickers, right? So if you ask a politician, where do you stand on this particular issue, they'll say something like, we stand for action on climate change. And you, and you might say to yourself, well, what does action on climate change actually mean? What is this action of which you speak? I stand for action on climate change. Well, what's the action? I don't know, but there's going to be action. You want to be part of the action, don't you? Everybody wants to be part of the action. I stand for LGBT rights. What does that mean exactly? What are you going to be doing? What's different? BB, have you ever thought about running for president in the United States? I haven't, but I do have a pathway. First of all, I'm going to move to Austria. I'm going to be adopted by potentially, you know, Nazi sympathizing parents, and then I'm going to become the greatest bodybuilder the world has ever seen. Then I'm going to move to California. I'm going to win a couple of Mr. Universe competitions, and then I'm going to star in a couple of action films. Then I'm going to have. Uh, then I'm going to become governor of California. Then I'm going to have sex with my Latino maid, which will do well for me with the Latino vote in the current migration crisis. Next thing you know, next stop, White House. Yes, I stand with the children. I stand for action on climate change. I stand with the children. <laughs> I stand for the workers. Politicians seem to stand a lot. They seem they seem to stand for a lot of things, but what do they really stand for other than saying that they stand for things? Trump, on the other hand, comes out and goes, yeah, I'm a nationalist. <laughs> <laughs> they all lose their fucking minds. Don't forget to get to the chopper. <laughs> the chopper. All right, let's carry on. Carry on with a bit more of sour lemons. Uh, one more time, why not?
I don't think I'm ever going to get sick of that. I don't think I'm ever going to get sick of it. You better brace yourself. All right, let's rock and roll. Enter the FBI. And just days after Trump's legal team submitted written answers to questions from Mueller. CNN has learned that the president told Mueller he didn't know about that 2016 Trump Tower meeting with his son, campaign officials, and Russians uh, promising dirt on Hillary Clinton. He also told Mueller... <laughs> See, General Eaton loves, loves the intro now. See, uh, on the fifth time, it's a fucking classic, man. The first time, you're like, oh, this is dumb. The second time, you're like, this is just annoying. The third time, you're like, huh. The fourth and fifth time, you're like, play it again, Sam. <laughs> ...writing that Roger Stone did not tell him about WikiLeaks. ABC is reporting that the president also said that he was not aware of a change to the GOP convention platform in 2016 that watered down support for U.S. assistance to Ukraine. Vladimir Putin sure must have been really happy about that. <laughs> and there's more from that interview with the Post. The president blatantly trying to intimidate Democrats in, their ho- in the House, trying to scare them out of investigating him with the bare-knuckle threat that he's going to declassify documents he claims would be devastating to them. Yeah, that kind of sucks, though, doesn't it? Um, There's a couple of ways you can look at that, a couple of angles that you can take. See, the problem now is for Donald Trump, right? He kind of has to declassify them. Do you see what I'm saying here? Because Donald Trump has threatened to do a lot of things. But I think now he's at the point where he has to actually do it just once, just once. Because the opposition is kind of getting a bit brazen. They're kind of, they. I think to an extent, they're like, you know what? This guy makes a lot of threats, but he doesn't actually do anything. So let's just power on. Let's just do it. Now, boogie, you Nazi Jesuit piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> GDM. Gary Duncan Miller, everybody's favorite Rangers fan. I'll just let you know, seven in a row, baby. Seven in a row, lad. What you going to do about that, laddie? Seven in a row. So, you know, I, I, but then I guess, again, you, you could then assess it. It depends. It depends on how cynical you want to be and how, you know, how many times you want to loop back around, loop back around, loop back around. Lucifer Sam says, I doubt much exists to declassify. See, that's the thing. We don't know, do we? We won't really know unless it gets done. We won't know unless it actually gets declassified. Trump is a BS artist, black belt, third degree master. Oh, he's definitely, well, he's definitely a good entrepreneur. I mean, what do they say about uh, P.T. Bartnam? But since when has being a bullshit artist been a bad thing in politics, my friend? As you would know, to be a successful politician, you've got to be able to be a good bullshit artist. I mean, we just went through it. He's got a little bit of a different technique, but he's not, he's not fucking special in that regard. They're all bullshit artists, mate. <laughs> like, I'm, I always laugh when people come out and say, Trump is a bullshit artist. I'm like, yeah, who the fuck isn't? It's, it's politics, mate. Everything's bullshit <laughs> to a degree. There's very, real, there's very little reality in politics. There's a lot of bullshit. A lot of bullshit. That's that's why um, would you say good natured, well intentioned people often don't last very long because of all the bullshit. 
Because they're like, I can't do anything here. I can't do anything in this mess. There's too much bullshit. They get the hell out of there. He's a natural politician. He's the best politician in the game. Well, he's doing well at the moment. You know, suffice to say, we'll see if he's the best for long. But so I said, it dep- like I said, it depends on how many times you want to loop around on it. So you could portray, you could portray weakness. So you could, you could say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it and lull your opposition into a sense of false security where they're like, he's not going to do it. He's never going to do it. Let's rock and roll and push forward. It could be the case that Sam is saying that they're rocking, rolling and pushing forward on him because even if he does do it, there's not really anything in there to declassify. But I would have to push back on that by saying, well, if there was nothing in there to declassify, the Democrats would know that, then why are they saying you must not declassify this? Because the Democrats are on record saying, no, 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 no. If you declassify, it's going to be dangerous. It's going to throw the whole system into, you know, it's all going to throw everything into chaos. You must not declassify. So to be fair, they kind of showed their hand a little bit there. Just from that, just from that uh, play, they perhaps exposed whether it's, whether it's, I mean, whether the, the, we can argue about degrees of bad but if it was if it was any bad at all, like if, if it was absolutely clean, if it was absolutely clean and there was nothing in there that could damage the Democrats, then they would say, "Okay, declassify it. I don't care. Go for it." But they didn't do that, did they? So <laughs> because the Democrats were all right. it's all shits and giggles till someone giggles and shits. I like that. I'm stealing that. I'm stealing that. So it depends on how you want to play it. Now, is he lulling them into a false sense of security? Do they think they're going to push on? Is it a game of chicken at this point? Now, I did laugh hysterically for a good 15 minutes when I saw that tweet about, okay, now it's time for the treason trials. I thought, wow. And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the tweet. It wasn't the meme. It was the, it was the, it was the moment of sitting back with my feet. I was at work. And I was like on a break at work and I just lit up a cigarette and I was like sipping on a can of Pepsi or something and like the feet up and, you know, I see this thing and it wasn't necessarily the meme itself. It was just, it was everything. It was the fact that it's the president tweeting it out. It was the, it's the ride that we've all been on together for the last two or three years. You know what I mean? And like it all came together in that moment. It's like, all right, now it's time for the treason trials, bitch. <laughs> I, had, I had tears rolling down my eyes. I had to pinch myself. I'm like, is this happening? Is this is this is this reality now? I thought it was amazing, but you know, I kind of embraced the chaos. Millie says there's plenty to hide. Well, again. There may be. There may not be. Timing is everything. That's why I thought it was interesting. I tweeted out earlier today. Now, you guys who are regulars here, you know that I'm not like a Q watcher. Um, but I'm not I'm not somebody who gets into the the kind of debate of oh, is Q real, is Q not real? That it really doesn't concern me. 
I am definitely somebody, like, I don't do conclusions, especially in politics, because as we all understand, basically everything in politics is bullshit to begin with. So, and, you know, politicians themselves don't want to have conclusions about everything. Anything. They'll never give you a conclusion. They always leave everything open-ended as best that they can. So you want to leave as many options on the table for future moves that you can possibly leave. That's just smart politics. That's how you go about it. Like anybody who closes closes doors in politics isn't going to last very long because at the end they'll end up with one potential option and it's probably going to sink them because everybody knows what it is. (laughs) We know you're a Jesuit shill. But in regards to the timing thing, I thought, well, you know what? That makes sense. So he gave an interview, I think it was the New York Post, but I quoted the Hill article on Twitter. And he said, you know what? Um, I might wait wait until I declassify it. I might wait until the new house is sitting. That's when I'll do it. If I'm going to do it. And he actually said something along the lines of, um, this will be how I launch my 2020 campaign. Now, here's the thing, like, here's a little truth bomb for you. And, you know, you may disagree with this, but I, I don't see how you could, to be fair. Um, if if everything that Donald Trump has been doing hasn't been geared toward re-election in 2020, like from day one of the presidency... What's what's the most important seat? What's the most important house to have, do you think? Is it the White House? Is it the Senate? Or is it the Congress? I'll, I'll let you answer. What's the most important house to hold? Where can you do the most damage? Where can you affect the most change? The White House, the Senate, or the Congress? It's up to you. I'll give you a minute to think about it. I tell you what, I'll give you some thinking music. Here you go. Okay, I'm seeing a lot of a lot of votes for Senate. Senate, Senate. No one obviously rates the Congress. That's fine. White House. White House, White House, White House. Sandra and Key Wizard. Senate, Senate. I'll tell you why it's not the Senate. Because look at what Barack Obama was able to do with both houses against him. Look at what Barack Obama was able to do with both houses against him. The most effective house in the system is obviously the White House. The power of executive order, for example. What you can do internationally. Obviously, there are some restrictions that the Senate can do. Uh, the Senate couldn't stop him from doing a number of things on the international stage. So I think that's obviously the most important one. And from there, you can you can direct the ship to an extent. And veto, right? The veto powers. 
but he did it behind their back. It doesn't matter. He did it, right? So you can have the most disruptive power from the White House, obviously. So consider this. I'm going to put this proposition to you. If Donald Trump hasn't been doing everything from the first day, from the first day of he, when, he, when he got into the White House and he sat down and he said, right, what do I have to do? If he wasn't gearing everything toward re-election in 2020 at some level, and it doesn't mean that everything is successful, it doesn't mean that every uh, move that you make is going to be a successful one, but if every single move that you're making is not geared toward 2020 and the re-election in 2020, then he's an, then he really is an idiot. And I don't think he is an idiot. The White House is the most important house of the three. If Donald Trump doesn't retain the White House in 2020, everything comes to a shuddering halt. You know this, I know this, he knows this. So when you take that into consideration, think about timelines. Now, somebody said timing is everything, and I've, I agree 100%. <clears throat> and uh, full circle over on YouTube, my cousin used to play the Lemon Song on his accordion at every family party when I was a little tyke. We've had another request for the Lemon Song. One more time. Let's go. It's even better this time, isn't it? It's even better when you play it again. So, <clears throat> pardon me. So when you consider this, you've got different timelines. Now, see, when I tweeted out timing is everything and I pl- and I put together the Hill uh, headline about declassification and the particular quote from Donald Trump, which was, I might do it when the new Congress sits. And, you know, he, he was saying other things like, this would be my perfect launch into 2020. His timeline is going to be different from your timeline. And I don't want this... The reason I said, you know, I'm not a Q watcher is I don't want that to be mixed up with Q. Because anybody who's been paying attention to politics, I know that has become like a Q saying, like timing is everything. But I'm here to tell you, timing has always been everything in politics. That's not new. Like, that didn't just start when Q started. Anybody who's been involved or watching or participated in any kind of political activity has always known that timing is everything. Everything. Because everything is geared around, uh, one, retaining power, but two, you also want to inflict maximum damage on your opponent. And so if that means like, you know, a week after this particular report comes out, you announce this policy or, you know, a week before your policy announcement, your opponent then comes out with this report, which damages you. That's It's all about timing, right? Politicians will sit on shit for literally years, years before they release it, just waiting for the right time. It's like... It's like Johnson. Have have you got, have you got that report that we did back in 2016? Oh hell yeah, I've got it right here. Let's go. Now's the time. Let's rock and roll. Why? Because the government just announced they're going to do this policy shift. Now we can hammer them. Now we can get these people on board. 
Timing has always been everything. So it made total sense to me that you would wait until, like, if, if you're going to declassify and if, like, you should be gearing everything you do toward re-election in 2020 so as to shore up what you've done and then press on in the final few years, give yourself the best possible chance of a generational shift. Because remember, if he's out in 18 months, it's all over. It's game over. Game over. All gone. It will just shift back. It will be business as usual. It'll be like nothing happened. It'll be a four. It'll be a four-year blip in the history book, and it'll just be blanked out. Someone will use liquid paper and go over it. It'll be like George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and then the four-year period there. There'll be nothing there. It'll just be an empty space, an asterisk, like what they do in the record books when someone breaks a record while they were taking performance-enhancing drugs. Right? They don't. They don't put their name there. They just put a little asterisk there. That's what it'll be. So if he is um, timing everything toward 2020, which he should be, which he should be, if he's smart, then I would suggest that it makes total sense to wait until the new Congress sits. And, you know, maybe it might be on the day. It might be a week after. Then you just burn it. Like, all right, here's your declassification. Smack. Because what you want, see, this is the thing. This is why I say things like embrace the chaos. If you're in the minority, chaos is your friend. If you're in the majority, you don't want chaos. Whoever the majority is in the particular house that you're trying to disrupt, whether it's like Congress or the Senate, see, we only have two. We don't have a White House here. We don't have a presidency. We only have the House of Reps and the Senate. But whichever one you are in the uh, in the minority in, you want to create chaos because uh, you want to make it difficult for the the team that's in the majority to govern. Why? Because your objective is to get back into governing. So the the team that's in governance wants everything to be stable. They want nice, stable. Everything's predictable. They don't want any surprises. In order to stay there. If you're on the minority, you want to just create chaos because chaos means there's a lot of fires that they have to put out. And while they're putting out fires that you create, they're not doing what they want to do. So you, you, there's two things. You never want to give your opponent what they want, right? But with inherent within that rule, never give your opponent what they want is always try to give them what they don't want. So if the, if the party in the majority in the House of Congress... What they will want is to control the narrative. They'll want to be able to, um, you know, initiate cycles. They'll want to have free reign. They'll want their investigations to just sail through. They don't want any disruption because what they're trying to do is gain advantages in the Senate and potentially win the White House back in 2020. Now, the role for the Republicans in Congress now becomes creating as much chaos as possible. This is arguably how they won um, the Senate and the Congress um, from the Democrats when Barack Obama took over. I don't know if I know. I know we kind of live in like a twenty-four-hour news cycle right now. But if you can cast your mind back to when Barack Obama won in two thousand and eight, and the years like oh uh, eight, oh nine, ten, eleven, and I think twelve is when they lost both houses. I think they lost, did they lose, I think they lost the Congress in 2010, and then I think they lost the Senate in 2012. Correct me if I'm wrong. They might have lost both of them in 2010. I'm not sure. But that two that two to three year period was a blitz. It was a campaign, right? 
everything was crazy. The Democrats were losing control of everything. They were helped by the financial crisis. Fuck the banks. Fuck the big companies. Too big to fail. Obamacare on top of that. We can't afford this. This is ridiculous. This guy's a radical. Chaos, 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 chaos. As much as you can create. Why do you want to create chaos for the team that's governing? The reason you want to create chaos for the team is governing is because it's a two-horse race and you want to present yourself as the alternative. And what's the best way to present yourself as the alternative? By making the side that's, you know, in the majority look like they can't do anything without chaos. (laughs) Very simple stuff. So if the Republicans, if Donald Trump wanted to create chaos in the House of Congress, think about it. Uh, Congress is going to use their position in the House to go through like all of the investigations. They're going to investigate every every person that's ever had a vodka at a cocktail party. The declass he he specifically said declassification of Russian documents. The Russian documents. He didn't say any other documents. He said the Russian documents. Why? Because the House of Congress is the only place where they can come out and investigate all of the Russian shit over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. So if you were trying to create maximum chaos, you would absolutely drop the declassification of the Russian documents on the lap of Nancy Pelosi as she gets as she puts her ass into the seat as Speaker and she picks up the gavel for the first time. You go, here you go, Nance, deal with that. Next thing you know, all of the Republicans in the House are on the front foot again. The Democrats are running around putting out fires and they can't uh, prosecute any investigation in the public effectively because the Republicans have turned the media into like a a spin cycle. (laughs) What about this person? What about that document? What about this link? What about that connection? He knew him. They knew him. Look at this connection here. Yes, 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 but what about Mueller? We're investigating Russia here. Shut up, Adam Sh- Adam shit. Shut up, shitty. There's chaos here. You guys can't govern. Look at look how the Democrats handle the House. They can't be trusted with the White House. They can't be trusted with the Senate. Every time the Democrats get in, they just create chaos. Never mind the fact that you created the chaos for them. That's the point. Get power, keep power, and stop someone else from taking it. Is anyone else getting sick of looking at Don Lemon? Let's just, one more time, just to close off. that. We didn't really even talk about Don Lemon. That's the Don Lemon segment, Sour Lemon. Haven't haven't used your stuff yet, mate. I will. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna do something very quickly here, and then we'll take a short break, and then we'll get right into the Twitter stuff. I had CRISPR babies and everything all lined up, but like I said, Laura Luma has completely shattered our show plan for the day. But that's all right. That's all right. Thanks for joining us, Don. Thanks. Thanks for joining us, Don. Um, I did want to play a little bit of this because I don't know if if James is still here or not. If James is still here. Something that he and I talk about a lot, uh, even off air, is uh, wedge politics. Like every now and then we'll talk about it, we'll discuss it on air and, you know, how to wedge effectively. Um, 
you know, a lot of politics, a lot of um, winning is about being able to effectively wedge your opponent. Now, whether that means wedging uh, the voters and turning them against each other or wedging the voters against the leadership or whatever it is, you, you inject, it's like injecting little spores of uh, anti-venom into the system. Do you know what I mean? To like, to like shut down the connections that people make between leaders, between leaders and voters, or you know, various voting groups amongst each other. The left has been incredibly effective at wedging the right over a number of years because they'll find it's very easy to wedge the right. To be fair, because if the right is based on you know individualism. Uh, they don't take kindly to having to like fall in and play on the same team kind of thing. People, people on the right tend to uh, attack problems from a more individual standpoint rather than a collective standpoint, which is why they're not collectivists, so to speak. But putting all that to one side, we've often talked about wedge politics. Here is Rahm Emanuel on Morning Joe, and and <laughs> keep thinking wedgy. Sorry, I'm. T- <laughs> Here is Rahm Emanuel on Morning Joe literally laying out the democratic plan and, you know, literally explaining to people what wedge politics is. You're going to love this. Like, there's no hiding it. It's not a secret. Wedge politics isn't a secret. Wedging people is not like some kind of conspiracy. They all do it and they all know it. And he's going to tell you exactly what the plan is. Check it out. Nancy Pelosi is one step closer to... After it loads. Isn't that a pain? One step closer to reclaiming the speaker's gavel, but her fight is not over yet. Running unopposed on the secret ballot, Pelosi won the support of 203 House Democrats to claim her party's nomination. But 32 Democrats defected and three others left their ballots blank. That means Pelosi will need to win over 18 of the Democrats who did not vote in her favor yesterday, assuming all Republicans vote against her. Asked if she has those votes, Pelosi said yesterday, quote, I think we're in pretty good shape. Joining us now is the Democratic Mayor of the great city of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel. Mr. Mayor, good to see you as always. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. You wrote yesterday that this is one of the most consequential Congresses in modern history, and it's no time to have a rookie sitting across the table. From This is uh, the establishment Democrats sticking up for the establishment Democrats. Pay no attention to the little pat on the back he gives Nancy Pelosi here. It's all bullshit. He probably hates her guts. Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump. There's a movement, yeah. as you know, in the, through these midterm sure. elections from some of these people who made promises, uh, who won their elections, Democrats saying it's time for a new generation of leadership in the Democratic Party. And I will stand in the way of Nancy Pelosi becoming speaker again. What do you say to those young people who are voted into Congress and want to turn the page? Well, a lot of people uh, voted. That's why we have a majority. I look at it from two <laughs> levels. First and foremost, from a presidential level. One is when George Mitchell faced off against Bush on the budget, it set the precedent for Bill Clinton's election. In 06 to 08, when we faced off against uh, President Bush in relationship to kid care and other items, it set up the par- paradigm for... See, he's, 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 uh, he's saying exactly what I was telling you. He is articulating the exact kind of rationale that I was articulating to you before about planning everything around the next presidential run and disruption, right? Uh, Barack Obama to become president. The next two years are about setting up for the election in 2020. 
and dividing, in my view, the Republican Party and Donald Trump from the base of the Republican Party. That is what happened. See how he hasn't even mentioned, he hasn't even mentioned, um, you know, the Congress people, the Congress women and the Congress men who have been elected who didn't want Nancy Pelosi. Why? Because you can't, you can't answer that question. You turn, you turn everything back, turn everything around. The reason we have Nancy Pelosi is because we're gearing up for 2020. And the best, the best effective way to uh, gear up for 2020 is divide Donald Trump's support base from Donald Trump. How do we do that? Well, he's going to tell you. In this last election, a whole group of independent voters, and mainly in the suburbs, came our way. Are we going to put our arms around them or shove them back? And I see these next two years as a precedent and a, basically a building block into... See, <clears throat> people saying, I don't like Rahm Emanuel... <clears throat> I'd, I hate Rahm Emanuel and stuff. That's that's all good. But again, you've got to divorce yourself from what you think is right and wrong. Remember, it's all about effectiveness. Rahm Emanuel is arguably one of the most effective politicians in American history. How else could you be the mayor of Chicago for as long as he has with all of the problems Chicago has? Remember, Rahm Emanuel is a very Machiavellian character. Rahm Emanuel does not deal in moral good and moral bad. He doesn't deal in right and wrong. He deals in effectiveness versus non-effectiveness. Rahm Emanuel was the guy who said, never let a good strategy go to, uh, never let a good crisis go to waste. This is someone who very much understands what he's doing. And you can say, I don't like him. And this is what I was talking, this is what I was talking about. If you want to go back and listen to the podcast called uh, The Three Laws of Politics, right? When we get into these discussions about whether you like a politician or hate a politician, I like him, I hate him, she's weak, he's strong, he's weak, she's strong, I like the way she speaks, I hate the way he speaks, you know, he looks funny, I don't like her, you know, this kind of stuff. It, it, what, it, what it is, it's a ref- and I'm not, I'm not picking on anyone here, I'm not saying it's wrong, it's just the way we are. It's a reflection of our immaturity in relation to what the political system actually is. Because everything, everything, all of that stuff all bubbles on top of the three laws of politics, which is everything is geared toward getting power, keeping power, and stopping someone else from taking it. That's it. You can't do any good unless you get power, keep power, and stop someone else from taking it. You can't turn America into a communist super state unless you get power, keep power, and stop someone else from taking it. You can't return America to its free market libertarian principles unless you get power, keep power, and stop someone else from taking it. Everything always falls back on the three laws of politics. Rahm Emanuel understands this. Like, like purely, in a distilled fashion, he gets it. That's why you should, you should absolutely listen to what he says. If, if Rahm Emanuel comes on the TV, if you're a Republican and Rahm Emanuel comes on the TV and discusses openly and honestly what he's doing in order to disrupt the Donald Trump presidency and his strategy for divorcing Donald Trump voters away from uh, Donald Trump, you should absolutely listen to him at 100%. 2020, you need a veteran, as I said in the rest of that statement, you want Nancy Pelosi is as cagey as Mitch McConnell is ruthless and Donald Trump is unprincipled. And I want a veteran who understands what happened in 1999, 1990 that led to 1992 Bill Clinton's election. Like I said, ignore the part where he's giving Nancy Pelosi a pat on the back. 
here's, here's something where myself and Lucifer Sam 100% totally agree. Nancy Pelosi is arguably the most unpopular politician in American history. At the time when she was Speaker, she had the I think she had the lowest approval ratings for a Speaker on record. And I think that includes the pedophile guy. Like, imagine having that on your resume, being a less popular Speaker than a pedophile. <laughs> it's, it's not fucking easy to do, I'm telling you. It's not easy to do. <laughs> she is hated by most Democrats. She's kept in the position that she's kept in because the Democrat, the, the source of power for the Democrats on Capitol Hill is the California team, the California sect. California is the beating heart of the Democrat Party. Look at all of the power positions that come from California. Um, Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters, you've got Swalwell there, right? Like this, this, is, this is the functioning brain of the modern Democrat Party. But the modern de- Democrat Party needs to understand that they are they are not Californians in the rest of the country. This is arguably why they've been getting absolutely thrashed over the last decade. She's a train wreck. She's a disaster. Smart Democrats don't want her there. Unfortunately, they have so much power that 203 of them were like, yep, we want Nancy. And, you know, Rahm Emanuel's playing the game in regards to Nancy Pelosi. But when he talks about wedging... Uh, Support away from Donald Trump. He absolutely understands. Adam Schiff, yep. Adam Shitty. Shitty Schiff. He's from California as well, amazingly. Uh, it seems like all of the heads of the committees are from California. Isn't that, isn't that the darndest thing? <clears throat> all of the people in the Democrat Party with the plum jobs come from California. Isn't that, isn't that funny? Isn't that strange? Wow. What a coincidence. That's because all the hippies of the 60s became wealthy, free market, capitalist, socialist warriors, social warriors. Yeah. There, there is, a, there is a, an element of truth to that. I'll give you that. And in 2006 and 2008, that led to President Obama's election. That is what these two years are about. Mm. She's a seasoned, experienced veteran. And she understands what's happening hates. and therefore will respond to the energy, which is positive. The second thing that I really think is important, I say go. this as a believe her as a Democrat. When you look across the elections that were very strong for Democrats in the House and in the state houses, Nancy Pelosi led the Democratic Party for the last two years from a really bad election in 2016. I'm from Chicago. Maybe I'm really old school, but to the victor go the spoils. You don't now. A lot of people in our party and if Beto O'Rourke wants to go and run for president, God bless him. He should put his hat in and make his case. But he lost. You don't usually promote a loser to the right. top of the party and then take a winner and say, we're going to cut your knees off. <clears throat> I just, my view is, do you, everybody in our party always says, oh, the Republicans are Pardon so much me. tougher, so much stronger. I'm trying to pause it. Do you think they would take somebody? I'm trying to pause it. Do you see what he's doing there? See, Beto O'Rourke comes from the, um, you know, the, the, do you want to say the hard left progressive wing of the Democrat Party? Rahm Emanuel represents, you know, what would be considered in the Democrat Party to be the moderate, which is, you know, like the pseudo-capitalist, um, you know, almost like a liberal hawk that gets raped with two with $100 bills. Does that make sense? So he's guarding his territory factionally against the progressive, like the more progressive wing of the Democrat Party. The more progressive wing of the Democrat Party is represented by people like Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, 
uh, the, the the chap down in Florida, uh, Gillum, um, Acacio Cortez. This is this is a growing movement. So people like um, Pelosi, Schumer, uh, Swalwell as, as well. Uh, Rahm Emanuel, these guys see the progressive wing gaining momentum and they want to put, they want to present themselves as the solution to Trumpism. Because a lot of Democrats, they've no, like they know, they look at their internal polling, they look at the way that the, the harder left candidates, I mean, a, a few moderate favorites over the last 20 or 30 years got knocked out in primary, they got primaried by hard left activist types. So, they're trying to protect, like, they're trying to guard off against this movement, which is, you know, most recently represented as 32 people voting against Nancy Pelosi, right? So they've got their own internal factional war going on in the Democrat Party. This is the thing that, like, the, 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 the illusion of, you know how people always say, oh, the left is always united? And, I, I, I mean, I was talking about it earlier myself. That's that's true to an extent, but it's always only paper thin. It's only paper thin. The same kind of factional warfare happens on the left just as much as it does on the right. See, arguably what's happening with the Democrats now is they're going through their own Tea Party Donald Trump revolution. See, it's arguable that with the election of Donald Trump, the Tea Party people won, even though he's not like a, you know, uh, you know pure blood libertarian. Doesn't matter. Um, it was about disruption. It was about a disruptor. It was about <clears throat> it was about sticking your your finger up at the establishment of the Republican Party. And they were like, oh, "Okay, so you want Donald Trump? Fine, have him. Like, let's see. Okay, you want you want Donald Trump? He's going to lose the election. Who gives a fuck anyway? But he won. So arguably, the the Tea Party position was vindicated. Yeah, see, Sam knows. Happens more on the left. It does. Like the union movements versus the socialists versus like the Marxists versus the universities versus the public servants. It's all like it's, it's, it's a very dynamic, you know, constant war that goes on. But what they do get is campaigning. They're very, very good at campaigning and presenting a united front. And that's where the Dem- uh, the Republicans are not so good, in by comparison. But the factional warfare is vicious on the left, absolutely vicious. I mean, I can only speak for you know the system down here, but you know my long held argument is the left is basically the same in any country that you go to, and if they're anything like the Australian left, then they're cutthroats. <laughs> they're absolute cutthroats. But the same thing's happening on the left. So Rahm Emanuel knows this. So he's trying to shore up the ground for his faction, which is, you know, the again, like I use the term moderate loosely because I wouldn't consider Rahm Emanuel to be a moderate, but in Democrat circles, he is, if that makes sense. But let's let's carry on. That one and said, you know what your reward is? We're going to cut right. your knees off. Right. That's Look, in Chicago, New York, across cities and, and suburban areas, that's not how you play politics to win. And I think 2020 is right. the... See, so he's already adjusting, uh, adjusting his language for the blue-collar Chicago voter, like the blue-collar New York type. Hey, you know what? I'm from Chicago, okay? Uh, Chicago. I can't do the fucking accent. Don't, don't, don't hurt me. Don't hate me. Hey, you know what? Here in Chicago, you don't attack the person that won the last election. In New York, you don't do that. You know, that's, that's not cool, bro. <clears throat> The, 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 the Democrats are already transitioning into middle-class rhetoric, in case you didn't notice. 
Nancy Pelosi and Rahm Emanuel and other people who have been around politics long enough to know what they're doing know that they can't let the far-left feminist uh, racial activists take over the the conversation because if they do, they're going to get absolutely slaughtered. The only way back for the Democrats is to appeal to what they used to appeal to, which is like the middle-class, working-class types. Arguably, and you know, you know, you might not like this, um, I'll just give you my opinion from the outside looking in. Arguably, the middle class, working class vote was the one that was most ignored for potentially 10, 20, maybe 25 years. And the reason that Donald Trump is he, uh, Donald Trump won is he was the first one to appeal to that voter. Like, he might not have been the best candidate. He might not have been uh, the saviour. He might not have been the one. He might not have been Neo but he might have just been the first one to actually identify, hey, did anybody notice that there's a whole, there's like millions of voters out there that everyone's been pissing on for the last 20 years? Why don't we go after them instead? So while, you know, the other establishment Republicans were flirting with, um, you know, the moderate left and being, you know, all compromise and whilst at the same time uh, appealing to big business, but not really speaking directly to the middle class and to the working class. And whilst at the same time, the establishment on the left was making all of the kinds of sounds that you might hear from like a Marxist weekend away at your local university. If you actually look at it, Donald Trump was the one that cut right through the middle of all of that shit. I mean, it's well known that Donald Trump in the lead up to the 2016 election, and I'll keep hitting this, hitting on this again and again and again, uh, he had teams of people listening to talk radio in the Rust Belt. And you know what's valuable in talk radio? Because <clears throat> people are like, oh, the, the uneducated people love Donald Trump. Yeah, but the uneducated people voted for him and he won. So, you know, you, you better start loving the uneducated people too because they matter. The people who don't have a college degree also matter in this thing called, you know, democracy or a republic. They, they also matter because they also vote. So you better start fucking listening to them as well. So what he did was have teams of people listening to uh, talk radio in the Rust Belt. And what you get in the Rust Belt is, well, what you get on talk radio isn't necessarily the, the university professor who goes on the ABC and talks about intersectionality and all different kinds of oppression. What you don't get on talk radio isn't necessarily like the multi-million dollar business owner who talks about why it's important that we need uh, international trade deals. What you get on talk radio is the plumber, the cleaner, the teacher, the, the housewife, right? <clears throat> the single dad, you get the mechanic, you get the street cleaner, you get all of these people who otherwise, you know, it's they've been getting pissed on for the last 25 years. No one cares what they think because they're just going to vote according to trends. And they're like, hey, you know what? Like the economy's failing here. Um, what's, what's the go with all of these trade deals? And you mark that, you put that down in your notepad. And you'll be like, you know what? I just feel like everyone on Capitol Hill, I feel like Democrat or Republican, they're all on the same team and everyone's ignoring us. You put that down on your notepad. Like the plumber might call up at two in the morning and say, you know what? Um, I, I, I just, I'm just not happy with what's happening down at the border. Like, can't we just be for America first? You put that down on your notepad. After some study, after some consideration... 
after actually witnessing that the Republican candidates for the president and the Democrat candidates for the president, none of them are hitting any of these talking points, you do a little bit of math and you come to the realisation that, hey, if we actually just take the Republican states and win these few, you know, traditionally blue-collar uh, Democrat states where all of these people are talking about all of these things, what if we just hit that message? Do you reckon we can win? And they're like, 99% chance Donald Trump can't win. And he, what does he do? He comes out. These trade deals have got to end. We've got to put America first. We need American jobs. Something has to be done about the border. And all of the idiots that get paid six figures in the in the mainstream press don't even know what to do. I, I, I don't know. How could this happen? I don't understand. I don't get it. <laughs> I, find, I, I just find that dynamic amazing. <laughs> you, you're certainly persistent, GDM. I'll give you that. <laughs> Continue commenting, sir. I do not block. I do not ban. You will get no satisfaction from me, laddie. Right, just maybe a minute more, and then we'll get into your stuff that you sent in on Twitter. Game. It's the most important game. My eyes on that prize. And you need to set up in the next two years using the foothold we have in Congress to drive what I call a triangulation, where McConnell and Trump don't agree yeah. on education, transportation, health care cost control, corruption. You drive right there, right. and you make sure you drive a wedge because it sets up for 2020. Mike. Do you want it? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to hear it again? He's telling you what's going to happen. You should listen to the guy. He knows what he's doing. He's probably one of the best in the business when it comes to this stuff. One more time. Every He wants everybody hating McConnell by this time next year. Right? He wants um, Republicans arguing amongst themselves about things like transportation and taxation. Right? Are, are you paying attention? Are you, are you listening closely? This is absolutely going to happen. Triangulation, where McConnell and Trump don't agree on education, transportation, health care cost control, corruption. You drive right there, right. and you make sure you drive a wedge because it sets up for 2020. Mike. Okay, so, go. Mr. Mayor, you just used the phrase seasoned, experienced. Triangulation. He knows exactly where to hit. Sam gets it. Sam gets it. I mean, it's not a shocker. It's not a surprise. It's just reality. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. Next time you see a press piece saying something along the lines of Mitch McConnell, sources say Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump were in heated disagreement over how to approach their new healthcare policy. Now you'll know why. Next time you see a piece come out that says, Transport experts agree that Donald Trump's plan is in direct conflict with Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. Now you'll know why. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. All right. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with your Twitter comments. We'll see you in five. Aloha, James R. here. When I'm not in court defending the boys from the starting block against slander charges. Alleged! Yes, yes. Alleged. I'm hosting Trust and Verify with Boogie Bumper every Sunday night at 1 a.m. on TABshow.com. Join us and all your favorite broadcasters there. TAB 
Show.com. Friend and foe alike, join me, Varun Prasad, every week on the Common Discourse Weekly Roundup podcast. You can follow the show on at TCD Tweet on Twitter and Periscope. Subscribe to the show on YouTube, Stream Me, iTunes, or your preferred podcast platform. If you like what you hear, or you would like to express your raging discontent, please consider leaving us a review. The Common Discourse, independent political opinion, thought, and analysis for the people, by the people. Do you lie awake at night pondering life's big questions? Is there a God? What is the meaning of life? How would one do an hour-long sports show without ever actually talking about sport? If yes, we can help you answer 33% of these pressing questions. All you have to do is check out the starting block on TAVshow.com, Periscope, Stream Me, or YouTube, Wednesday mornings at 3am Eastern Standard Time. You can also download the podcast on iTunes just by searching for The Starting Block in the store or at thestartingblock.podbean.com. Or if you're really desperate for answers, why not check us out on Twitter at The Starting Block. No K at the end, don't forget to drop that K. Enlightenment is now only a click away. Now that is a freaking awesome I think a lot of it is he's free where they're not. If you are on the side of the politically correct, then you are, it's like you're constrained by the weapon that you're trying to hit somebody else with. Does that make sense? Like you can't, you can't profess the virtues of political correctness and overt sensitivity and not offending people and then come out and do it because you'll be a traitor to your own cause. So if you don't sign up to that politically correct mindset, if you don't fall into the I must not offend crowd, then you're really free. And they're not because they can't attack, they can only attack you by saying how offensive you are. And if it's particularly unpopular at the time to be, you know, uh, politically correct, then guess what? Every single time that you use the only weapon that you can, which is political correctness, you get less popular and the person that you're attacking gets more popular just by the fact that you're attacking them. Because if you're saying that these people are so politically correct, like they, they can't say whatever they want, every time you try to attack the guy, you prove his point. You, you make him stronger. It's like trying to fire nukes into the sun and think you're gonna blow it up. It doesn't work that way. You're just adding to the combustion. It's not going to stop. It's not, it's not going to stop. He's not going to slow down. The way these people approach it, they, they just don't get it. He, he's not going to just suddenly snap out of it. He's not going to start being what you want him to be. It's only going to get faster and harder. But they, they don't see that. They don't understand. So, that, I mean, because that's the bubble. That's the privileged bubble of going straight from college into a, you know, into the media and living in that environment and all of your colleagues agree with you.
Welcome to the Daily Boogie. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around if you did. I see we culled about 20 people. Oh, sucks to be them. Sucks to be them. Dems are fiddling with deck chairs on their own Titanic. I I do have to get I do have to get to your stuff that you sent through, but I think we really must we must just quickly burn through some articles that I had lined up here because there's there's so much gold here and I'm not going to do it justice. If I can spend just a couple of minutes on each one, you'll thank me for it. Trust me. White progressives shouldn't be smug about racism. We could be doing much more to end it. White progressives like me can usually be counted on to call out racism on Facebook. Unlike Fox News commentator Tucker Carlson, we consider the nation's growing diversity strength. This is exactly the kind of shit that me and Sam were just talking about in that last segment. We assure ourselves we would never discriminate against a black, Latino or Asian job applicant at our workplaces. We proudly display hate has no home here signs on our lawn and fight racism bumper stickers on our cars. Remember I said you're arguing with you're arguing with a bumper sticker. Claudia just got here. What did I miss? Everything, Claudia. Ev- everything. Everything. What are we actually doing about racism? There is no cause for complacency and no uh, justification for the piousness and superiority that white progressives frequently exude around race. True, our mouths, hearts and votes are generally in the right place, but our money often isn't. Our decisions on where we live, worship and send our kids to school, whom we include in the communities we form and how we leverage the advantage of our white majority status for the benefit of others. White progressives should ask ourselves, what are we actually doing about racism? A lot of it, we'll see, falls under the heading of easy stuff. The article goes on. <laughs> Amazingly. I, I, I couldn't believe I was reading this this morning. Okay. Oh, where Where is this particular line? Keeps Okay. Those committed to a racially just society, he writes, must transgress the boundaries of real estate by buying where we should not and living where we must not, by living together where we supposedly cannot, and being identified with those who those whom we should not. Most people are not ready to sell their house, pull their kids out of school, and move to a predominantly black neighborhood. (laughs) The the reason I'm laughing is because somebody in a book somewhere legitimately made the argument that the way to solve racism is to, like, could you imagine? Could you just imagine? Uh, who here is married? Put your hand up if you're married. I want you to go home today and say to your significant other, just say you live like in a nice neighborhood, your kids go to a good school, right? Say, honey, <laughs> 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 
Honey, I've got good news. Oh, yeah, what's that? What's that, darling? We're going to fight racism. Oh, really? How are we going to do that? By selling the house, pulling the kids out of the good school and moving to the ghetto. (laughs) See, the great irony here is this is the great disconnect. This is the great idiocy that we're living in with, you know, the overtly virtue-signalling white progressives. Uh, They are proposing to each other that, you know, the object is to end racism. Therefore, uh, if you live in a nice area and in in a nice house and your kids go to a nice school, that's just perpetuating white supremacy. So what you actually have to do is pick up sticks and move to the ghetto. But the, (laughs) the sad reality is... People that live in the ghetto, they spend their lives wondering how to get the fuck out of there. They want to get to the nice... They they want to move to the nice area. They want to have their kids go to the nice school. They want to live in the nice house. (laughs) And so they should. So they fucking should. The whole point is about moving up the chain, not going down. Nobody's going down. Wow. Like what sort what sort of a sick and twisted individual would you have to be to say that we have to fight racism by by moving out of the good neighborhood that we've worked hard to be in by taking our kids out of this good school that gives them good opportunities in the future and 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 moving into the ghetto where everybody is killing each other to get the fuck out of there. Like what the hell is wrong with you? What the hell is wrong with you people? It's amazing, isn't it? I, c- I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Everybody in the ghetto is dying to get out, and white progressives, are, they can't wait to get in. And, uh, you know, the cruel twist of fate is, the, the cruel twist of fate is, if the white progressives all do move into the ghetto... They'll then be accused of gentrifying uh, a black suburb, which is also racist. <laughs> Gentrification is racism. Can't have all these white folks moving in with their farmers' markets and shit like that. That's racist. That was one of the first videos I ever did. People were accusing the little, you know, the little growers' markets at the end of the road. They were saying that that's a perpetuation of white supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Things just get better and better. Here's the climate change article I was telling you about. Here's the kids holding their save the planet signs. Um, Climate change, climate change propaganda has always been geared towards children. If you don't believe me, just go to Google and type in climate change children. And you will see page after page after page after page after page of posters, videos, lesson plans, UN, uh, curriculum plans over and over and over and over again. We need the children. We need to get the children involved. Save the children. Convince the children. Let the children know. Now we have the children taking days off school to go and protest against climate change. Mind you, if uh, the chief scientist in Australia, who is also an advocate of climate change, has actually come out on the record and said, if Australia stopped all of their manufacturing, all of it, if we stopped all power production today... The effect on, like, the environment and the effect on the world temperature would be next to zero. It would be practically useless. 
Yet here they are protesting. Thousands of Australian school children planning to walk out of class to demand federal government action on climate change. What were we talking about? Vote for us if you want climate change action. What's the action? I don't know. I just want to be where the action is. (laughs) In uh, Sydney's favourite left-wing newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald. Children are demanding action on climate change. What's the action? I don't know. I just want action. Whatever the fuck. Climate change are only going to learn how to join the dole queue, a senior federal government minister says. If you don't know what the dole queue here is, the dole is slang for welfare here. So if you're joining the dole queue, it means you're going on welfare. (laughs) So the strike for climate action inspired by a 15-year-old Swedish uh, schoolgirls activism. Yeah, because that's what we want to be taking our... That's what that's who we want to be taking our cues from when it comes to running a country. 15-year-old Swedish girls. <laughs> you know what? Because the Swedes have just got everything right. I, I can't think of anything that the Swedes have fucked up in the last 20 years. Can you? Surely not. That'd be ridiculous. The strike for climate action inspired by a 15-year-old Swedish girl, girl's activism will involve children in capital cities and 20 regional centres such as Ballarat and Newcastle. Strike organisers predict hundreds of students will gather in Sydney's Martin Place at noon on Friday to kick off the national protest action. There's that word again. The action on climate change action. What action are we going to do for climate change? I don't know. We'll have an action for the action. These are the type of things that excite young children and we should be great. Uh, but resource uh, Resources Minister Matt Canavan, who is from the conservative part of the government, says he wants children in school learning about how to build mines, do geology and how to drill for oil and gas, which is one of the most remarkable science exploits in the world, he said. These are the type of things that excite young children and we should be great as a nation. Make Australia great again, you might say. Taking off school and protesting, you don't learn anything from that. <laughs> I think I think he's right. <clears throat> God love him for saying it, because it's about time conservatives stopped, stopped sucking up to this kind of bullshit. It's about time conservatives grew a pair. This is what he said about the protests. The best thing you'll learn about going to a protest is how to join the dole queue, because that's what your future life will look like. Up in a line, asking for a handout, not actually taking charge of your life and getting a real job. (laughs) (laughs) Matt Catavan, ladies and gentlemen. The Australian Resources Minister. All you're going to learn from doing your little protest here on climate change is how to walk in a line, put your hand out and never get a real job. Good on him. Good on him. Is the screen all fucked up? What's going on there? Looks okay to me. Ah, that's better. That's better. God, sorry about that. God, how long was it like that for? That's terrible. Climate change protests will lead to Dolkew, Minister tells students. Mum's fury after airline worker name-shamed her daughter, A-B-C-D-E. What the F? 
A furious mum has accused an airline worker of laughing in the face of her five-year-old daughter simply because of her name. A mum has claimed her daughter was mocked to her face and then on social media by airline staff because her name is ABCDE. Can I go out on a limb here and say the whole time, the whole time the screen was fucked? (laughs) Doesn't matter. Can I just go out on a limb here and say, if you name your daughter ABCDE, and I don't care if you pronounce it Absidy, which sounds like a gym. She said it's pronounced Absidy. That sounds like a gym. Don't you think? If you go and name your daughter ABCDE, I'm sorry, you're not. That's for you. You're doing that for you. Maybe you've got a competition at the local cafe where the other soccer mums get together and discuss. Maybe the other soccer mums get together and discuss, you know, who's got the most. Well, you know, I'm naming my daughter uh, Tangerine. Ooh, that's going to be tough to beat. That's going to be tough to beat. Well, I'm naming my daughter Deodorant Capsule. Ooh, very trendy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No CFC will be her middle name. Well, I'm naming my daughter Absidy. Oh, oh, get that girl a latte. You are so hip. My God, you are so hip. Takes real courage to give your daughter a proper name, an expansive name, a hip name. She doesn't fall into categories. She's not going to be gendered. She can decide her own name. It's it's horrible. But then, like, see, the way they're trying to frame it is, oh, they were laughing at the girl. No, they were probably laughing at you because of what a bad parent you are. I would. I would absolutely laugh at you for being such a shitty parent. I have nothing but sympathy for the child. Nothing but sympathy. It's child abuse, really. There's there's a, a government authority in France. Now, you guys who are regulars, you know I'm not one for government panels and government authorities, but there is actually a government authority in France that ha- have to actually approve baby names. So if you come up with something that's ridiculous, the government in France will say, I, I, they'll go, I don't think so, monsieur. No, no, monsieur. No, 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 monsieur. You, you, cannot, you cannot name your baby Toyota Celica. You cannot name your baby Mazda Miata. How about Jean-Paul? How about Marie Loin? These are good names. These are good French names. French names. I'm sorry, sir. You, you cannot name your baby Brooklyn Bridge. This, this does not make any sense here. We cannot have this. I think, I, you know, I th- I'm starting to think that that's a good idea because it looks like there's a lot of whacked out parents running around that want to name you, their babies the alphabet. Think about the poor person at the DMV, you know, 18 years from now. I'm sorry, what was your name? They're thinking, I can't put this on an ID. The police will absolutely think it's fake. Eventually, they'll come for me. I thought this was absolutely fantastic. I only found out about it today. Sex workers say incel campaign to report them to IRS won't work. Men's rights activists are threatening to report sex workers to the IRS 
But is it just a new form of harassment? I thought we loved tax. I thought I thought we loved people paying tax. Don't we want people who make money to pay fucking tax? Apparently not. Not the prostitutes. Not the whores. The whores get to live tax-free. I might have to find a new fucking job. <coughs> you mean all I have to do is get ravaged for like eight hours a day and I don't have to pay any tax? That's fucking tempting. Don't, don't you think? A few angry men on the internet... <laughs> A few angry men on the internet have launched a campaign encouraging others to report sex workers to the IRS for failing to report income. Income. Beavis. Did he say income? Yeah, yeah. Income. Come. They make online, claiming they'll get a cut of any back taxes collected as a reward for being whistleblowers. The campaign dubbed the Thought Audit is circulating around misogynist men's rights and incel circles on Twitter and Reddit. Uh, I would have thought, and anybody who wants people to to pay their fair share. So who's in favour of uh, the whores paying tax? I would have thought the misogynists, the incels, the women haters, and anybody who wants people to pay their fair share. Don't you think don't you think everybody in society should pay their fair share? Think of every Democrat politician you've ever seen make a speech. We just want people to pay their fair share. Their fair share. Everybody should pay their fair share. Apparently not. Not the hookers. I guess they've paid enough. I'm not concerned about being reported, says Rachel, who works as a financial dominatrix. <laughs> I will not pay tax, you pig, you capitalist pig. Now bend over. The IRS is not only heavily out overburdened, I'd be shocked to find someone who had even one sixteenth of the necessary information to file a 3949A. Oh, she knows her stuff. That is hot. That is hot. That is a financial dominatrix. Imagine how imagine what a nerd you would have to be to be turned on by a woman doing your taxes. <laughs> you know, if we just fill out this 3949-A form and we put it under your superannuation plan and then convert that back into, you know, a, a you know, a, a double <laughs> That way we can get around subsection 49.6D and the guy's just got like a boner that would break coke. You could break coconuts on this guy's boner. It's like, baby, put down the briefcase. It's time to do some math. (laughs) Pardon me. I'm getting dizzy with the imagery. I barter hard for goods for my sex shows, like food and bars of precious metals. <laughs> Tom Chatelet. And one more. China halts work by scientists who says he edited baby's genes. Um, it's pretty easy to, you know, figure this out in the headline. China halts work by scientist who says he edited baby's genes in the past tense. He's already edited the baby's genes. What the fuck are they stopping? 
It's already done. Thanks, China. Thanks, bro. Thanks for stepping in. <laughs> China, we hear that one of your scientists has uh, edited babies' genes. No, no, we put stop to it. We put a stop to that shit. Before or after the baby? Well, you know, trade war. Trade war. Okay. <laughs> Let's get to your stuff. Thanks for joining us, everyone, by the way. Boogie's dying. Gay frogs in the throat again. Pretty widespread now in Australia. Oh, they're everywhere, bro. They're everywhere. Absolutely fucking everywhere. Can't get rid of them. Nor would you want... I wouldn't want to either. I'm not homophobic. I'm not frogophobic. I've been looking forward to this. It's a busy... We've got a busy list ahead of us. Now, this was from Lucifer Sam. Today, I think we reached the beginning of the end in that theme. Let me introduce you to my favourite liberal, Thomas Frank discussing the Democrat strategy and why Trump's destruction won't help them. Let's have a little look. So here's a good question maybe from one of our commenters that speaks to just this. Uh, Cameron McDonald writes, because uh, I think this is a, a popular democratic assumption, right? She said, do you believe the popular democratic assumption that America's changing demographics will guarantee their party's domination? Thanks for joining us full circle. Standard. See you next time. Right? Well, that's the, that's the, that is, well, it's not only the standard narrative. That's where the, the, that's where Listen Liberal started. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it has a bunch of starting points. Um, it starts, it picks up from where What's the Matter with Kansas left off. It repeats a lot of the stuff that was in the baffler back in the 90s. Yeah. But it started when I was at a dinner party in Washington and I was talking to a, a you know, a, a Wow, that's that's pretty egocentric to say liberalism started when I was at a dinner party in Washington. <laughs> Just throwing that in there. A highly connected Democrat, let's say. Mm-hmm. And he was explaining to me the theory of the coalition of the ascendant, which is that Democrats will win every presidential election from here on because of demographics. Yeah. And what this has led to, and it's, hey, fair enough. I can read the, you know, uh, the, uh, the census data as well as anybody else. Uh, you know, they've got a point. The, uh, the problem with this is that it breeds complacency. Because it, you, it makes them think everybody votes as their demographics dictate. Okay, we are all pawns. We are all, uh, you know, puppets of, uh, you know, demographic data. Yeah. Okay, and so the Democratic candidate doesn't have to do anything. They don't have to do. Any, they don't have to deliver anything. They don't have to do anything differently because they know for sure that we're going to vote for them because of demographic data. And it leads to something like Hillary, which is this campaign of utter, I mean, complacency, complacency on stilts. Yeah. You know where, uh, it, but it, worse, it takes uh, Republican you know, uh, 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 quiescence for granted. The idea that Republicans aren't going to do anything about this. They're just going to go down with the Titanic, yeah. right? With the- so let me get this straight. He's saying that the the overwhelming idea in Democrat circles is de- uh, demographics will eventually win the day. And he's admitting that Republicans, which by by definition would be white people, if he's saying that, you know, well, one day the country's going to be um, majority minority, therefore the Democrats will always win from that point on. Hmm. Now, uh, of course, I'm somebody who rejects identity politics, but I'm not an idiot and I don't live in a vacuum and I understand absolutely 100% completely the arguments of the quote-unquote alt-right who do adhere to identity politics and their argument is quite a compelling one. That being that if every other population group adheres to identity politics and you don't, you will eventually lose. 
So at that point, does it make sense that all of the Democrat politicians over the last 10 years have been telling you you're a racist if you vote Republican? Hmm? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know he's saying they won't let it happen. I know. He's, he's going to say that they've come up with some other way, right? Thinking white male Titanic or whatever yeah. it is. And, you know, I got news for you. Republicans aren't interested in dying. Yeah. You know, these are some very uh, uh, smart people working in the, Dem- in the Republican Party, very dynamic people. They like to win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and they, you know, look, they're out there trying all these different things. And, and this is where this gets really, really interesting. Trump found a way to beat that argument. Okay. Trump has found a way to defeat the coalition of the ascendant. And- well, we, we articulated that before, right? About, you know, being the first politician in the last 20 or perhaps 30 years to not ignore the middle class and the working class. Here's where the Democratic complacency gets really bad, because they're all sitting around in Washington now saying, well, Trump is going to self-destruct. All we have to do is wait for him to screw up and then we'll step in and it'll yeah. be status quo ante. We'll, you know, everything will be fine. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that, because I don't think, to be fair, the Democrats are just sitting around waiting for Trump to screw up. I think they're actively trying to create an environment where the only thing he can do is screw up. I mean, when I look at the Democrats, I don't see people just sitting around waiting, to be fair. To be fair, I'm talking about the politicians. They're very active. They're very on the front foot. They're very aggressive, especially lately. Russia, collusion, taxes, investigations. This, this doesn't, this doesn't uh, present to me as a group of people just sitting around waiting for shit to happen, to be fair. I think he's completely misread that. No worries. I, th- I think he's, you know, I think he's projecting a little bit of naivety onto the Democrat uh, politicians, to be fair. Yeah. Right? Look, Trump, Trump may screw up. Trump may get impeached. Trump is a fool. Yeah. Trumpism is here to stay. Okay? This idea of populist nationalism. Yeah. And Trump, by the way, is a terrible politician. Oh, yeah. Well, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Even Sam agrees that Trump isn't a politici- uh, terrible politician. He said his own word. I believe the quote was, he's the best one of the lot. So he's gotten that wrong too. I mean, uh, an idiot. <laughs> like the idea of running for president and like making fun of all these American ethnic groups. It's like, yeah. what the hell is this guy? Okay, so Trump's a terrible politician and he's an idiot. I mean, the idea of making fun of all of these ethnic groups. Now, I don't necessarily agree that Donald Trump did make fun of ethnic groups, but if he did, by the guy's own argument, then he could not definitely he couldn't be a terrible politician because he fucking won, mate. So okay, so let me let me get this right. Trump's a terrible politician and he's an idiot because he made fun of all of these ethnic groups, yet he has simultaneously created an ideology that is here to stay and will outlive everybody. Sounds like a real moron, doesn't he? Right? <laughs> thinking, but think about Trumpism mm-hmm. in the hands of a real politician, ah. a Marco Rubio, yeah. a Ted Cruz. Yep. So Marco Rubio could could Marco Rubio could make Trumpism even better. Right. He's just saying Trump puts his foot in his mouth. He's not a bad politician. No, he's saying Trump's an idiot. Trump's a moron. Trump's a terrible politician. These are things that he literally just said like 30 seconds ago. Could you, could you imagine Marco Rubio trying to act like Donald Trump? 
<laughs> I know I know the underlying argument, uh, nationalism, but again, that's not a new thing. That's basically as old as mankind itself. Uh, a member of the Bush family, okay? That's going to be hard to stop. And the Democrats better be thinking of how you take that ideology on. The Republicans have found something new here. Yeah. They be- Nationalism is new, ladies and gentlemen. Just want, I just want you to know, uh, economic nationalism was invented by Donald Trump. It is now called Trumpism. And it was invented by the guy who is simultaneously a terrible politician, an idiot, a fool, and the guy who invented this new thing that the Democrats need to take seriously, otherwise it will end them forever. It's not one of your best, Sam. It's not one of your best, mate. <laughs> Better be in, instead, they're just sitting around saying, well, you know, demographics will deliver it to us eventually. All we have to do is sit and wait. <laughs> it's, it's just it's the stupidest strategy. Yeah. Utterly complacent. To be fair, um, I think I, I prefer Rahm Emanuel's approach over this guy. This guy fundamentally misdiagnoses the problem. He fundamentally um, misreads Trump. And he, I think he fundamentally misreads what the Democrats are doing. Just my opinion. Okay, okay. He might have, he, he might have didn't, he didn't mean invented. He just meant changing the political landscape. Okay. That's not what he said, though. That's not what he said. I can't read his mind. I don't have that ability. He might have better stuff out there, but that wasn't one of them. Just letting you know. Just letting you know, bro. That was pretty bad. Someone sent this in. I don't know what it is. We'll soon find out. Barbara Streisand says, female Trump voters don't believe enough in their own thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. The only reason <laughs> the only reason you voted for Donald Trump is because your own mind is playing tricks on you. Now, you've heard of 4D chess. This is 8D intergalactic battle chess, ladies and gentlemen. Your own brain is cha- is playing tricks on you. This is why you voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> Singer Barbara Streisand has been vocal about her liberal views for years. Bravo, she should get a round of applause or at least a Grammy. But in recent, uh, in a recent interview promoting her new anti-Trump album, Walls, isn't she fucking creative? Isn't, isn't she just a fucking gem? Uh, yeah, I just, I just feel so strongly about, you know, being against Donald Trump. I'm going to name my new... It's, it's a very esoteric album. It's not something that, you know, you can just launch into. You have to listen to it and understand it and appreciate it, appreciate the art that went into it. And, you know, it was a very real experience for me. And, you know, I went, I really went through an emotional roller coaster. Um, you know, writing this album, it's such an important thing. And I, I really feel like our world is at risk right now. I really do. And... You know, I just I just want to raise some awareness and I want people to come together in the face of 
divisiveness and I want us to be united. And I really think, you know, it's important to highlight, you know, the problems that are going on in America right now. <laughs> and, and you know, I put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into this album. What's it called, Barbara? Walls. She made the assertion that women who voted for President Donald Trump don't believe enough in their own thoughts. Speaking to Weekend Magazine, Streisand questioned how female voters could cast a ballot for a man with pro-life views. Everybody hates life. Everybody hates life. Particularly Trump. It's a terribly complex thing, the 76-year-old singer explained. I see I've, I've already done the fucking shtick. I didn't even read the article. I've already, I've already read what she's going to say. <laughs> I've already told you. Oh, it's a terribly complex thing. A lot of women vote the way their husbands vote. They don't believe enough in their own thoughts. I thought we've been over this. Didn't Hillary make this argument? You only voted for Donald Trump because you're doing what your husband did? That, you know what? That says to me that um, because there are a lot of women out there that didn't vote for Donald Trump, guys, you need to be doing your jobs. Get your woman, whip your woman into shape. <laughs> Apparently the men aren't very good at controlling women's thoughts. Not as good as Barbara Streisand would have us believe because it appears that there's a lot of women out there that aren't voting for Donald Trump. So, men, it's time to step up, get yourself a woman, chain her to the kitchen, and only let her out on voting day with explicit instructions. You shall vote for Donald Trump. You shall ignore your own thoughts. No, you cannot have that new Barbra Streisand album. Not until you bake two dozen cookies for myself and my chauvinistic pals. Then we'll talk. Then, of course, there will be sex. Which you will have no discussion in. (laughs) Don't believe your own thoughts. This is the way women are treated. I vote for Donald Trump. Of course, I'm not wrong. How dare, how dare you say I'm wrong? (laughs) James, my ex-wife asked me who to vote for after she tells me I'm an idiot. (laughs) Fantastic. Walls is a compilation of politically charged songs written by Streisand herself. Oh, she wrote her own music. She wrote her own songs, ladies and gentlemen. My hero. She acknowledged to the weekend that there's a lot of anger in the lyrics. Yeah, but it's seventy-six-year-old woman anger. What's the anger really going to be be about? I couldn't get my favourite knitting needle. The cat did potty next to the lounge. By the way, Trump's a Nazi. Sorry, that was incredibly sexist of me, wasn't it? I know it was incredibly sexist of me. Don't don't blame me. Don't blame me. I'm just one of those chauvinistic pigs you've heard so much about. By the way, vote Donald Trump, bitch. (laughs) I believe in truth and that if I'm truthful in what I'm singing about, that comes across as being passionately upset with what is happening to my country. Yes, because what we haven't had enough of is celebrities being passionately upset about shit that nobody cares about. BS Boogie. My hubs follows my politics if he wants to harvest the fruits of my harvest. Oh, I like that. I like that. Mo Maureen is on. She is onto it. <laughs> She's absolutely onto it. Tom Chatelet. Liberals only let the women out of the kennel to vote for Hillary. Repubs have free range women. 
I like my women. I like my women free range, Tom, because I like them to build up those thigh muscles, stomping around and scratching in the backyard for worms. Okay. See what we got here. Paul suggests granting Assange immunity in exchange for congressional testimony. Report. Julian... Oh, not this time, the Washington Times. Not any time, motherfucker. Just one of those pop-up. Do you want to subscribe? If I want to subscribe, I'll come to you. Don't come to me. Oh, look at this pop-up shit. We've only been doing the internet for 25 years. You think you you think the uh, people running websites would have figured out that nobody likes pop-ups by now? Apparently not. Apparently the people down at the Washington down at the Washington Times haven't fucking figured out that pop-ups are annoying. <laughs> pop-ups may restrict your traffic to your website, comrade. Just putting that out there. Just putting that out there. Consider this a focus group. Hands up, who likes pop-ups? <laughs> Answer, nobody. There'll be less people endorsing pop-ups than there will be buying walls. Julian Assange should be let off the hook for releasing stolen material through his WikiLeaks website if he agrees to testify in person before lawmakers investigating his publication of the Democrat Party documents, Senator Rand Paul said in an interview on Wednesday. I actually think this is quite interesting beyond, beyond the superficial. Let me tell you why. There is good reason to believe that the Democrat, um, the material taken from the DNC, right, was not actually stolen, but rather downloaded. There is a there is a reasonable amount of evidence. Let me put it this way: there is a there is enough evidence out there to suggest that it is at least plausible. I think what Rand Paul is doing here goes beyond like the I love freedom libertarian thing. I think he is actually playing a role for Trump here. If, if, and it's a big, 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 big fucking if. If the Trump ad, uh, administration has any information whatsoever about the, you know, the quote unquote stolen uh, material from the DNC, uh, the DNC, if they have strong reason to believe that it wasn't stolen, but in fact, like, downloaded and transferred to WikiLeaks, right, then if they can get Julian Assange in front of Congress to testify to that effect, then all of a sudden, everything that's happened over the last two years goes up in a fucking mushroom cloud. <laughs> Because the whole the whole Russia collusion narrative, if you think about it, if you trace it all the way back, if you go all the way back to the beginning, <clears throat> the whole story starts with the suggestion that Russia hacked the DNC and then passed that information onto WikiLeaks. What if Julian Assange has evidence that it wasn't Russia and then sits in front of Congress? and presents that evidence, then not only the dean, but Robert Mueller at that point becomes a pariah. 
because his whole existence is predicated on the fact that Russia stole material from the DNC. Now, whether <clears throat> whether Rand Paul is doing this uh, intentionally, whether he's been asked to float it out, whatever whatever the situation is, uh, I, I think it's very interesting. I mean, when when a guy when a whistleblower with the cachet that Bill Binney has, like nobody can you can question Bill Binney on some things, I'm sure but you can't question him on credibility. Credibility. And credibility is gold in this scenario, where you assume everybody's a crook. But Bill Binney has credibility. And when Bill Binney says that the the, Rush, uh, the DNC servers were not hacked, but rather the information was downloaded, like onto a USB stick or something of that nature, you tend to listen. He is the guy who designed basically the entire NSA network to begin with. Nobody knows it like him. But the the other question I have is more of a wonky one. Um, can the can the US grant Assange immunity? He's not he's not a US citizen. Can they do that officially, legally? I'm not sure. Isn't he an Australian? Isn't Jules an Australian? Me mate. Julian? Not sure. But I do find that an interesting angle. What does he know? And how do we find out? Maybe dangling immunity out there is just the situation we need. This one comes from 101101101. (laughs) Scott. I have popped organic grain at the ready to witness Trump's treason trials. Will our heroine Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez be there to explain the intricacies of law and order to us? Oh my god, I won. I'm the president. No, then I'm the queen. Wait, what did I win? This one comes from Follow Q, who joined us late, I noticed. Where's your note, young man? Birds aren't real. This video showcases a truth warrior taking to the streets in revolt for his valiant cause. Let's have a look. There is a birdemic happening! A birdemic. Birds are a myth! They're an illusion! They're a lie! Wake up, America! Wake up! God! God! Birds are real! Birds are real! Pigeons! Not real! Eagles! Birds are not real, they're a myth, they're an illusion. Thank you for your time. It's meant to brainwash us. Wake up, America! Have you, ever, have, you, have you ever seen a bird in real life? Yeah. No, you've seen an Obama drone. I'm just trying to start the movement, man. There's a birdemic happening. What's this thing? Birds are real. If that says anything. Laney in the chat said, go protest for Assange, Boogie. Okay, I will. I'll handcuff myself to Pamela Anderson. <laughs> oh, are you doing this to free Assange? Who? What? <laughs> Thanks a lot, Hillary Clinton. Ostriches, more like ostracizing, because birds are real, idiots. I will not move from this position until society has accepted the birds are not real. Okay, it's pretty funny. <clears throat> it's pretty funny. He obviously doesn't believe that birds aren't real. He did have some plays on YouTube. Well done to the lad. Well done. Birds aren't real is the conspiracy theory mocking Q anon. There you go. 
In an age where outlandish theories command national attention, members of Generation Z have turned disinformation into a performance art. That's very good from the Daily Beast. Birds aren't real. Alright, let's go back. I know, I sacrifice for the greater good, James. You know. Kimmy says about Pamela, uh, Pamela, Pammy. I, I even called her Pammy. <laughs> Kimmy says about Pammy, those boobs though. Yeah, but you know what they say. If you don't get it right the fourth time, the fifth time, they're going to be absolutely magnificent, baby. They get even better after the fifth surgery. Didn't you know? What do we got here? Kimmy sent some stuff through. National Geographic, this ought to be good. I'm expecting naked Africans for some reason. Whenever you hear National uh, National Geographic, you just assume naked Africans, don't you? Strange waves rippled around the world and nobody knows why. Instruments picked up seismic waves more than 10,000 miles away, but bizarrely, nobody felt them. On the morning of November 11, just before 9.30 UT, I don't know what UT is, A mysterious rumble rolled around the world. The seismic waves began roughly 15 miles off the shores of Mayette, a French island sandwiched between Africa and the northern tip of Madagascar. The waves buzzed across Africa, ringing sensors in Zambia, Kenya and Ethiopia. They traversed vast oceans, humming across Chile, New Zealand and Canada, and even in Hawaii, nearly 11,000 miles away. These waves didn't just zip by, they rang for more than 20 minutes, and yet it seems no human felt them. Only one person noticed the odd signal on the US Geological's survey's real-time seismogram displays, an earthquake enthusiast who uses the handle Matar... What is it? Matari Matari Kipax? Matari Kipax? Saw the curious zigzags and posted images of them to Twitter. The small action kicked off another ripple of sorts as researchers around the world attempted to suss out the source of the waves. Was it a meteor strike? A submarine volcano eruption? An ancient sea monster rising from the deep? Well, that's the one I want. I don't think I've seen anything like it, says Gordon Ekstrom, a seismologist at Columbia University who specialises in unusual earthquakes. It doesn't mean that, in the end, the cause of them is that exotic, he notes. Yet many features of the waves are remarkably weird from their surprisingly monotone, low-frequency ring to their global spread, and researchers are still chasing down the geologic conundrum. Isn't that interesting? I don't want to watch 101 earthquakes. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Look at that. Isn't that stunning? The sunset sky causing the you know the red effect on the ocean cast against the the crisp white of the iceberg isn't that absolutely just stunning wow motion in the ocean that is interesting perhaps it was the gates of hell opening 
Elaine says, I love Boogie. He's not a slut. I take it back, I think. No, you were right the first time. I'm a slut. Big slut. Okay, what do we got here? ABC. The Red Tide. Very Al Gore-esque. Oh, yeah, we did ABCD. What the F? Poor kid. Ab City. Ab City! (laughs) It is a fucking gym. I knew it. Wait, why why are we now on your timeline, Kimmy? What the hell happened there? Kimmy, Kimmy posted Ab City and it went direct to her timeline. That's interesting, Kim. Is there something you'd like to tell us? Check out Chad Blue's tweet. Might have a child named PQCDE, Peck City, baby. <laughs> <clears throat> Scientists ate Lego heads to see how long it would take to poop them out. God. This is science now. This this is this is who we are. This is reality. This is who we are. Trust the scientists, they say. You know, <clears throat> I was at a climate change rally today with my five year old named Ab City, and she believes we should trust the scientists. Well, isn't that the darnest thing? Last week scientists were eating Lego heads to see how long it would take for them to shit them out. Pediatricians have to deal with all kinds of interesting situations in their daily work with children. Kids eating random objects is one of them. Well, if you eat if you eat two hundred Lego heads, it's not particularly random, is it? There should be one Lego head, uh, one block, one you know matchbox car, one micro machine. <laughs> I just choked on my beer. System. <laughs> Let's have a look. The New York Post. <clears throat> a half a half dozen pediatricians decided to see what effect, if any, a tiny yellow Lego head would have on their own bodies by volunteering to swallow them. Oh, they're so brave. Their findings were reported in the Journal of Pediatrics and Child Health. This this says this suggests to me that we're coming to the end of human discovery in the field of pediatrics. Like I just I just picture a whole bunch of pediatricians sitting around going, "Okay, what are, have we figured out cot death? Yes. Do we know what a, a baby feels like when it sucks on a dummy? Yes. Do we know that breastfeeding is best? Yes. What haven't we done yet? Mm, I know. Let's all lead a, let's all eat a bunch of Lego and look at each other's shit. Great idea. Done. Sir, sir, we found the next headline for the Journal of Pediatrics. You're not going to wait until you... You can't wait. You're not going to believe what we found. (laughs) Really? What did you find? We found Lego heads in Jane's poop three days later. Woo! Fantastic stuff from the pediatricians. Working hard to save your baby from nothing really at all. California cult leader plans sex robot brothel with a twist. Oh, we've done the sex robots on the um the sex robot brothels on the starting block. But what's the twist? If it happens, the bionic bordello would require that customers obtain consent from the robots. Is that even possible? Good fucking question. 
Is that a robot? If that's a robot, look, kind of looks like Pamela Anderson from this angle, doesn't it? <laughs> Self-proclaimed fo- uh, cult leader Unicol Unicron. <laughs> I, I, it looks like A B C D E is going to be a future cult leader. I'm just going off the naming, guys. Just letting you know. One day there's going to be a story in the press that says cult leader A, B, C, D, E. And you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that was the kid that was laughed at on that plane. And then you'll know how the whole nightmare started. You know, maybe all of those people wouldn't have killed themselves if those mean people on that plane that time didn't laugh at my daughter's name. I blame them. I blame them for her becoming a cult leader who owns a sex robot brothel. got nothing to do with a name it's unique yeah you tell them someone earned a latte so trendy and cool don't forget to ask your sex robot for consent the line was a hint at unicron's latest business venture eve's robot dreams a consent focused robot brothel <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you america <laughs> At least in Europe, they have sex robot brothels, but you don't have to ask the fucking robot's permission. It's a pump and dump scheme. At least, (laughs) the very least you could do, America, was not fucking... What we don't need is feminism implanted into the robot, the sex robot AI. God help us all. God help us all. If, If men can't escape feminism with sex robots, then, like, the world will fucking end, I'm telling you. Because if if guys can't get laid for a significant amount of time, they will eventually put their, you know, their angst and their anger and their free time to discovering a way to blow up the world. I'm telling you, this is the way men operate. Men have to get laid on a frequent basis. Otherwise, they will make weapons to kill us all. <laughs> And if you're going to make them ask for consent, so if the if the nerdiest guys, if the least layable guys out there, girls, like I'm, I'm giving you the hot tip here. If you want your grandchildren to survive, don't worry about global warming. If you want your grandchildren to survive, at least let the the potentially psychotic weapons designers of tomorrow have sex with the robots without filling out a fucking consent form. At least give them that. Sure, you can't insert into a real vagina. Like, sure, the gr- the gears may grind on your bollocks a little bit. Like, that's fine. Do you know what? You can still get off. It's a robot. It's kind of humanish, but it's enough, right? It'll do. Yeah, yeah, it'll do. It's okay. Okay, I won't design a, a you know a, a brand new evolution of the nuclear bomb today. Fine, I'll just get it off with the sex robot. But. <laughs> But now it has to ask for permission. It's like, ah, oh, deal's off. I am taking everyone down with me. It's like, great, we've just created another fucking psychotic lunatic. Well done. Well done, feminism. The robots made by sex doll manufacturer Real Doll can swivel their heads, move their mouths. Well, that's convenient. Hold kinky conversations through a chat box embedded in their skulls. <laughs> That's an unnecessary feature. Nobody's paying for the, t- the for the kinky conversation. They're just going to go straight to anal. 
<laughs> Sorry. Sorry for lifting the veil. <laughs> Can I get the sex robot that has kinky conversations with a chat box in its skull? Nobody's ever saying that. Can I get the sex robot that just does anal all the time? Yes. We're sold out, sir. <laughs> you're gonna have to you we're gonna have to go on a waiting list. <laughs> Fine, I'll take the one that never shuts up. I came in here looking for an upgrade on my current girlfriend. Seems like I'm just getting the same thing. <laughs> it's the future. You can now take a robot on a date, reads a message on the proposed brothels Indiegogo campaign. That, wouldn't that be fantastic? Take your robot on a date. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, guys, if you've ever had the experience of carrying your female partner out of a bar at the end of a night when she's perhaps had a, a couple, couple too many Chardonnays, imagine the feeling of carrying her in. <laughs> Sure, they've designed a robot that can have sexy conversations and take it up the ass, but I don't think they've they've designed one yet that can get out of a car and walk into a bar. Just just my I'm just putting that out there. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> God, what a depressing fucking universe this is. How awful. Opinion Jeff Flake's sad exit. Do you have any do you have any fun financial dominatrix robots? Says Mike. Exactly. <laughs> I need one that does my taxes. Jeff Flake sad exit. He blocks judicial nominees in a futile anti-Trump gesture. Ah, oh, isn't he a hero? Usually, when Congress cancels a committee meeting, in uh, the country misses nothing more than grandstanding. But this week, the Senate Judiciary Committee had to halt progress on confirming talented judges thanks to GOP Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona. Is this anything that we didn't know, really? I'm not, like, I'm not, I'm not diminishing um, whoever put the article in, but obviously this is the Wall Street Journal today, the 29th of November, saying, oh, what, Jeff, Jeff, Flake is, Jeff Flake is trying to, you know, make things harder for the Republican Party? It's like, welcome to the fucking show, Wall Street Journal. Where have you been for the last year and a half, mate? What shit show have you been watching? Jeff Flake is a fucking disgrace. The committee was scheduled to meet Thursday to move some 20 judicial nominees, but Mr. Flake said he will block all judicial nominees until he receives a vote on a bill that would insulate Robert Mueller's Russia investigation from normal political accountability. The GOP's one-seat majority on judiciary means the party can't report judges out of committee with a favourable recommendation without Mr. Flake's vote. So he's holding the Senate to ransom unconstitutionally. He's trying to make it so the president can't do what the president is allowed to do. Jeff Flake, ladies and gentlemen. People out there have respect for Jeff Flake. Uh, Jeff Flake. Look at that. Kimmy's saying, I didn't write, read the part where you have to buy a vaginal insert. So you're saying you buy a sex robot, but then you have to get the vaginal insert separate. God. They just they just keep trying to stiff you, don't they? 
Is it possible you can play part of this with Laura Luma? She has so many supporters. Well, we did do we did do about an hour and a half on Laura Luma, but we can have a little look here. Cameras are in there, nice and tight. Hey, hey, you're gonna hurt someone. You're gonna hurt someone. That was really swift. Now that I didn't see before. That is utterly fantastic. That guy got that sign up there within what? What was it? 15 seconds? 15 seconds. Ladies and gentlemen, that's fucking, that's utterly marvelous. Now, see, I didn't see that, but that changes my whole opinion of it. That changes my whole opinion on on the, uh, the Luma incident. Whoever that guy is, give him a raise. He shouldn't be covering his face. He should be on the fucking front page of every newspaper in America. Hey, get a job. <laughs> you want to work at a printer's? Look at what this guy does. He's not even a professional. Anybody can do it. If this guy can do it in 15 seconds, it can sure as shit take you all day. How many times have you seen people putting up billboards and it takes them like two and a half fucking days? Get this guy on the job, whoever he is. Find out who he is and get him on the job will have every billboard changed in America within six hours. We'll get a high-speed car to ship him from one sign to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Put the whole billboard industry out of business. Show it again. I was reading chat. All right, just for you. Just for you. Look how quick this guy gets the, um, the sign up on top of the Twitter door. Cause this final one, it keeps spinning around. I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king. I've been up and down and over and out. And I know one thing, each time I find myself flat on my face. I pick myself up and get back in the race. That's life. That's life. You can't deny it. Utterly fantastic. Thanks, old try. I jump right on a big bird. And, and then, then I fly. Oh, blue eyes, ladies and gentlemen. I'm having serious mouse issues today. Wonderful. Oh. Went back one too far. And then we went one too far forward. <sighs> Every day is a struggle. Definitely measured beforehand. They scoped it out. But just that's that's good, like the ladder and everything. It was a two man it was a two man show. Six hour show tonight. No, we're wrapping up. We're wrapping up. We're in the final we're in the final furlong. Doing your comments, doing your 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 contributions. It is my favorite part. You know what I'm Let me know. Should I start doing the Twitter contributions at the start rather than at the end? Maybe I should start doing the Twitter stuff at the start. And then we can spend as much time as we want on the Twitter stuff at the start. 
and then do other stuff at the end. You tell me. What do you think? It's up to you. You guys let me know. The story behind thigh gap jewellery. <clears throat> now, Stefan. Stefan. Now, you're not merging programs, are you? Stefan, you're not merging programs here with this, are you? Now, you know this should have been directed to the starting block, comrade. What the hell is this? <laughs> it's just a blank page. <laughs> oh, it's very slow. Well, it's very slow for me because I live about 30 years in the past. Story behind T-Gap Jewelry. T-Gap Jewelry. T-Gap. It's so creative. Wouldn't you like to have one of these ladies? <laughs> at very least, if your man friend, if your male friend doesn't find it attractive, at very least the cat will play with it. Don't you think? T-Gap Jewelry, because <laughs> it's shiny and it dangles, you know? T-Gap Jewelry is a fictional, it's a fictional company that sets jewelry uh, jewelry's designed for thigh gaps. It is launched to catalyze a debate on unrealistic body image social media portrays. Well done. Well done. We got punked again. Oh, fantastic. Utterly fantastic. That is awesome. Thanks for that. And what a what a way to present it. See, you could have just come in and said, hey, man, that whole thing's a hoax, you know. Instead, you waited through the whole show. You just posted the link in the, in the, in the Twitter thread. Hey, here's the real story behind T-Gap Jewelry. Fucking magnificent, Stefan Sears. Well done. Well done. I love shit like that. When people come up with stuff like that, if I if I fall for it, see, I don't I don't consider it a um, an insult to be taken by stories like that, because to me, as someone who's you know, you know, somewhat rational, somewhat reasonable, to me, it just illustrates the ridiculousness of modern society that we can no longer uh, discern the bullshit from the real stuff. You know what I mean? So I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. Because if you make it too unrealistic, then it's too obvious. But something like that, you know what? Like, if I saw that, I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely a real thing because people are fucking crazy. <laughs> so it makes total sense. New York Daily News. Oh, we did this already. This is this is the hot story. More people are talking about ABCDE or AbCity, future gym owner AbCity, than they are about anything else today which I find fantastic. Now, see, is that a hoax story? Is that a hoax story too? No, see, see, we live in a world where um, thigh gap jewellery is an obvious hoax, but someone actually named their kid ABCDE. Let that settle in your cerebellum. Mr. America, the bearded truth, who slept through the whole show. We'll read his shit anyway. Indiana claims it can forfeit cars for speeding and minor drug crimes. Arguing before the US Supreme Court on Wednesday, Indiana's Solicitor General was already trying to defend confiscating a $42,000 Land Rover taken from Tyson Timms, who sold less than $400 worth of drugs. Unbelievable. 
Before the day was through, though, Solicitor General Thomas Fisher found himself arguing that the Constitution would let him forfeit luxury cars caught going five miles over the speed limit. Both scenarios involved civil forfeiture, which allows law enforcement agencies to seize and keep property, even over the most tenuous links to wrongdoing, as well as the Eighth Amendment's ban on excessive fines. Uh, You know what? Um, I'm a big fan of, I was a big fan of Jeff Sessions. He's obviously not employed anymore. That's why I'm using the past tense was. I was a big fan of Jeff Sessions back in the day when he spoke about uh, things like the TPP and what a threat it presents to uh, the national sovereignty of the United States. I absolutely get that. What I think Jeff Sessions was an absolute fucking jackass uh, with was civil asset forfeiture. And you know, it's fine if you want to be a hundred percent cheerleader for Jeff Sessions and say everything that Jeff Sessions was always good or part of a plan or he's utterly fantastic, butter wouldn't melt in his mouth and rainbows shoot out of his fucking ass. Then you have to reconcile that with the uh, with the fact that the guy thought it was totally okay for the police to just drive down the freeway and take shit off people for no reason. And if you can if you can explain that to me in like a reasonable fashion and make me believe it, then I'll give you a fucking medal. But until that happens, you know, Jeff Sessions, the hero. Sorry, deaf ears, deaf ears. Because that shit, that shit is like that's that's very swampy stuff. That's very swampish stuff. Tom Chatelet, civil asset forfeiture is tyranny, absolutely, and there's no other way around it. And Jeff Sessions was a big fucking fan of it. Unconstitutional bump stock ban. During the last presidential campaign, we were told over and over that if Hillary Clinton won, we'd get more guns. <laughs> Timothy, Tim in the chat says, wow, you, I think you watched that Scott Adams uh, scope the other day, didn't you, about how to troll effectively. Just say wow. <laughs> it's all good, Tim. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm, I'm being fair. I'm being fair. Jeff Sessions, if Jeff Sessions is a 100% good guy, then why would he support civil asset forfeiture? During the last presidential campaign, we were told over and over that if Hillary Clinton won... I mean, hey, if civil asset forfeiture is part of the plan, then I want out of the plan. (laughs) Sorry. Like President Obama before her, we know she would have tried and was likely to meet a great deal of opposition, but she lost. And yet we're definitely getting more federal gun control. Yesterday, the Trump administration said that a formal ban on bump stocks will be released in the coming days or weeks. The new plan will reportedly give bump stock owners 90 days to either destroy or turn in their devices. Think about that for a minute. Barack Obama, who was clearly and vocally hostile to the right to keep and bear arms, was not able to get any new federal law or regulation implemented to require gun owners to turn in or destroy anything. But the NRA-backed Republican President Donald Trump is going to do just that. The lesson should be crystal clear. If you believe in the right to keep and bear arms, or any right for that matter, relying on federal politicians to protect and preserve those rights to uphold their oath to the Constitution is a failed strategy. Unconstitutional bump stock ban. Be interesting what people make of that. 
I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know enough about bump stocks. I know they're a kind of an accessory <clears throat> that people can basically make themselves, can't they? And whether or not that constitutes a ban on arms or accessories, I don't know. It's kind of grey area, and it's too. I'm too far removed from it to really understand what's going on there. But if it is some kind of attack on the Second Amendment, then obviously Trump will have to answer to the voters on that one. A bump stock is a fancy belt, string, or finger. Ah, okay. Bump stocks are an amazing device. Anyone who turns in a bump stock is an idiot. Oh, it's very wow. Bumps are BS, but still, right, okay. Very interesting stuff. Yeah, see, we don't we don't have bump stocks here. Bump stocks here. I don't. I don't I, it sounds like a very um, would you say like a slang term for something? But if you say it's a belt, then uh, okay. Now I get you. Now I got you. I have guns. Bump stocks are stupid. Well, there you go. There's there's a wedge issue, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> there's a wedge issue right there. I guess, you know, it'll be a, a question of weighing up whether banning it is a net positive or a net negative and whether you can get away with banning things. Like, see, politicians like to ban things around the edges that don't affect, a, like, a large amount of people in order so they can turn around and argue to other people that they want to vote for them that they're doing something about a problem. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. Rock band Steel Panther shows the world how to handle PC outrage. It's brilliant. If you've done nothing wrong, make no apologies. You cannot appease the outrage mob, correct? So might as well double down and enjoy the ride. Now, this is what I like to see. So the rock band and hardcore party is Steel Panther. <laughs> make make 80s schlock rock great again. Uh, so the, the rock band and hardcore party Steel Panther showed the world upon the release of their newest product, a distortion pedal for guitarists named the Pussy Melter. It's the best name for a guitar pedal I've ever heard. Do you remember when we did the original? I think, it, was it you, Kimmy, that posted the original that feminists wanted to ban this, this guitar pedal called the Pussy Melter because it's sexist? And it's like, have you never been to a fucking concert? <laughs> have you never been to a heavy metal concert in your life? What, the, the, the name of the guitar pedal is sexist? Darling, have you never set foot into a hard rock concert ever? What the fuck are you talking about? I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure the hard rock and the heavy metal kids aren't really concerned with what feminists think. Have you noticed that? <laughs> I don't blame them. It's not the target audience, is it? The chicks I met at hard rock and heavy metal gigs were more than happy for guitars and pedals and shit to be called pussy melters. They were halfway there when they walked in. Possibly to stem outrage or to preemptively flip the bird, the band released the following statement. We respect and love freedom of speech afforded to all citizens in the US. We support the right for all people to express themselves no matter where they are in the world. We welcome all races, genders and sexual orientations at our shows. Very well, very well scripted PR stuff there. Shows that celebrate everyone's individuality through partying and, of course, a love of heavy, heavy metal. In other words, untwist thy panties before you come to our show. <laughs> As clearly stated by Satchel when it was originally developed, the sound being created by the Pussy Melter Tone Pack was intended to bring pleasure to females who heard it. 
It's fucking utterly fantastic. Why would you want to ban things that bring so much joy to so many women? Steel Panther is happy to announce that we are now offering pleasurable eargasms to everyone. The Pussy Melter is now available for pre-order in our official store. I'm going to buy one. I haven't played guitar in 10 years, and I think I'll buy one. I might have to, I might have to plug in the old rig, give the Pussy Melter a belt. This limited edition pedal will only be available until October 1, at which point orders will begin shipping. I think I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to do it. Get myself a Pussy Melter, plug it in, see what happens. Police officer rushes into burning shed to rescue a chicken. Another one from Stefan Sears. Tom Tom wants a few pussy melders. <laughs> Let's see this brave boy in blue sacrificing sacrificing himself for a cock. Where's my sound here? Look at that. Come on. Come on. Come on, girl. There. There you go. <laughs> oh, what a good man. I got one. Well done, sir. A New York State Police Department shared body camera footage of an officer rushing into a burning shed to rescue a chicken. The Ossining Police Department officers, uh, Officer McGovern responded Saturday to a fire threat at a shed adjacent to a residential property in the city. McGovern removed two propane tanks from the shed before rushing back inside to rescue a chicken in danger of becoming roasted. roasted. I got your chicken, McGovern tells the owner in the video. Now, it's not that we don't love chickens, the police department wrote. They're just fine and certainly deserve our assistance. <laughs> It's just I love I love when coppers have like a little bit of a sense of humor about stuff like that. I don't know who saw the video of a few I think it was a couple of years ago of a copper uh and there was literally like a chicken crossing the road and he was stopping traffic and he like he was doing a video and he was saying I can't believe I'm doing this. But it's like what happens when a chicken crosses the road? Well, a, a policeman stops cars. And there was a chook walking across the road. And he, there he was, like, stopping the traffic. It was fantastic. Utterly fantastic. Just, I, just, I just love little, little shards of light that break through all of the shit on a daily basis. You know what I mean? Little shards of um, beautiful, spontaneous, uh, unexpected, light-hearted humanity. You know, we have to do whatever we can to make sure that we don't forget those moments wherever they occur. And if it's a policeman, you know, rescuing a chicken, then so be it. Do you know what I mean? Because that's, that's what puts everything else into perspective. We get so caught up on, like, every day and getting dragged down and everything's a fight for survival now, even like in your mentality every day as you approach things like news and philosophy and how you fundamentally see the world. Everything's a threat, a grave threat. 
there's danger, it's fear, it's, you know, it's an ongoing cycle struggle. And if you're not prepared for it mentally, then you're probably going to struggle. And if you can just, um, you know, take a moment here and there to appreciate, like I said, those lighthearted, glimmering moments of pure joy expressed in, you know, the miscellaneous, um, understated, unrequired informational tidbits that we get, such as, you know, police officers rescuing chickens, then you should absolutely embrace it. Just my opinion. Thousands of men quit sex. Well, they've obviously never been to the, never been to the robot brothel. Otherwise, why would they be doing that? Did anyone else notice that the invaders at the borders were quiet today? Something big tomorrow, maybe. Maybe a dust storm. <sighs> Justin Bieber and Haley Baldwin practice abstinence before wedding. Well, it doesn't matter if you practice abstinence before. You can't practice abstinence if you've already if you've already fucked. Then it's it's kind of missing the point, isn't it? <laughs> <clears throat> It's like, yeah. Don't let those hot tub PDA. It's like, yeah, we're practicing abstinence now. We fucked several thousand times in the last two or three years, but like from now for the next few months, we're not going to have sex anymore. It's like, oh, bravo. What a commitment. <laughs> this November, thousands of men have attempted to abstain from ejaculation. I just, this is the first I've heard of it. Thank God. <laughs> The reasons why are somewhat unclear. I didn't even know there was a reason. The No Nut November community on the popular Reddit site has 16,500 subscribers. They'll be easy to identify in the street, ladies and gentlemen. Just just look for the men who are poking people's eyes out at the bus stop. where everybody's sitting on the bench. Some do it just for the memes, while others do it for actual self-improvement. No Nut November is clearly about what you make it. In the daily postings of the subreddit, No Nut November, men share their experiences about how they have vacilla- What is it? Vaccillated between... I've never even seen this word before. I'm going to assume it's vaccillated. Vacillated, vacillated between periods of severe discomfort and a sort of... There is way too much thesaurus porn going on right now. Why the hell do you need to squeeze a word like vacillated into an article about guys not coming? Come on, keep it, keep it, keep it, in, the, keep it in, the, in the area where it's supposed to be. If we're on the baseball field, don't start playing football, you know what I mean? Experience of how they have vacillated between periods of severe discomfort and a sort of zen state where they no longer want to jack it all the time. I'm actually kind of mad I have to finish it, but it's my own fault for starting. (laughs) For the followers of No Nut November, sometimes called Nut Vanquishers, now that's a better name, The Vanquished, Thought Slayers and Simply Soldiers, the goal is simple. You cannot ejaculate. Sex counts. So does birthday sex. You can touch it. You can get close, but you cannot reach the point of no return. (laughs) Can't believe there's a whole fucking social media subreddit dedicated to this shit. 
While posting in the group, members must refrain from posting sexually explicit content or racy photos, lest they make it more challenging for one another to abstain. I'm glad they did the Seinfeld, the contest, because that, that's one of the best Seinfeld episodes ever. The group kinds of act, kind of acts like a support network for abstainers where they share personal anecdotes and offer encouragement to one another as the thousands of newly chased men struggle through the month. Incredible. Incredible. See, this is the kind of shit that's going on in the world and I have no idea about here I am worrying about things like free speech and free expression, the the the, the vice grip that political correctness ha- has around the throats of the creative, uh, inspirational generation that will empower uh, action for those who come after us. Meanwhile, there's a whole subsection on the internet where people just sit around and talk about how they haven't pulled their dick for a month. It's like, wow, I'm wasting my life here. I, I'm definitely in the wrong business. I, I think I'm aiming too high or something. I don't get it. Brandon Darby. Hey, Barack Obama did the same thing at the exact same place in 2013. Did you call him those names too? Of course, Brandon Darby would know that it doesn't matter what Barack Obama did in 2013. The object is about hating Trump and that's all that matters. Haven't even got to General Eaton stuff yet. Holy shit. Let's go, General. Let's rock and roll. Taylor, Tinker Taylor Uber Spy. Taxi app hires ex-CIA spooks to spy on... Oh, God. God. Sorry, I missed the results before. Did you want us to do the Twitter stuff at the beginning from now on or at the end? Because this is like undoubtedly the most responses I've ever had to the Twitter thing. And I feel like I'm not doing it justice if I burn through it. Like, I'm not giving it time. You know what I mean? I feel like I'm being rude. You guys have sent stuff through. But we've already been going for nearly four hours now. So I feel like, you know, I have to wrap it up. So I don't think it's fair. Maybe I should do the Twitter stuff first. I'd hose those ladies down, boy. (laughs) At the beginning. Beginning. That's two for the beginning. What an appropriate song that's playing. After that last article. Do you guys know what Spanish Fly is? And the tasty little piano solo there. 
date rape drug. No, it's an aphrodisiac. It's a bullshit aphrodisiac that doesn't actually do anything. But it's like, um, uh, I don't know what he said. Uh, I'm feeling kind of tipsy because I bought it from a gypsy with their hair down to her knees. Give it to your lover when you're feeling undercover, undercover and you'll know they'll start to squeeze. Spanish fly. Bought it for a dime. Spanish fly for a real good time. <laughs> make you lose make you lose your will. Time to rack them up. Ain't no stri- time to rack it up. Ain't no striking out. According to the Associated Press, a former senior Uber security executive testified this Tuesday that the world's most famous car hailing company deployed a group of the CIA a group of CIA trained operatives to monitor and steal secrets from its rivals. Who are, who are Uber's rivals? Taxis. Do you really need to be a CIA agent to sit in the back of a taxi cab? I think you need a gas mask more than anything. I don't know if you noticed, but a lot a lot of taxi drivers have really bad BO. Maybe you have to be specifically trained. Like, maybe you have to have some of that tear gas training that the border guards get to sit in the back of a taxi cab. But I don't think you need to be a CIA agent, to be fair. Richard Jacobs, who was Uber's manager of global intelligence from March 2016 until he was let go this April, told the court that the company engaged in controversial cyber intelligence operations overseas with the help of ex-CIA contractors. This is wild. The former executive's lawyer released to the court a 37-page letter which also claimed that Uber supposedly tried to cover up its illegal operations by using special technology to conceal its digital footprint. This is uh, corporate espionage. Incredible. Jacobs was testifying as part of the... Now, see, this is one of those stories I wish I would do at the start. Because my mind would be a lot more fertile at that point than it is now. Jacobs was testifying as... I'm going to have to put this on the list for tomorrow. Jacobs was testifying as part of the ongoing federal investigation into Uber's industrial and cyber espionage activities that has rocked Silicon Valley for the past year. In its lawsuit against Uber, the car manufacturer Waymo, which designs self-driving vehicles, argued that the taxi-hailing company stole its secret autonomous car technology. In an interesting twist, technology giant Google owns a 7% stake in Uber while it owns Waymo outright. The new revelations caused a delay in court hearing that was originally scheduled for next Monday so that Waymo may gather, gather further evidence of Uber's misconduct. U.S. District Judge uh, William Alsop, who presides over the case, has called the allegations of Uber's illegal intelligence operations scandalous. This is not the first time that the car-hailing giant has run in with the law. Last week, Uber's chief executive, Dara Goodluck, with the last name, there may as well be ABCDE, if you've got a name like that, revealed that the company unlawfully failed to report a massive hack of its users' personal information. Here we go. Here we go. There it is. To the law enforcement authorities opting in favour of bribing the cyber criminals instead. (laughs) You know, the more I find out about Uber, the the more I think it's just a big steaming bucket of shit, right? They are all in on a carless future. They want us all renting. And if you think about it, an automobile is freedom. 
and I've said this before and I'll say it again, um, in the futuristic wonderland that the elites have planned for us, ladies and gentlemen, I hope your tinfoil hat is shiny, but in the futuristic wonderland that the elites have planned for us, uh, you know those days where you don't want to go to work and you just you just you just want to drive to the beach or something like that. You'll jump in your self-driving car and you'll say, I don't feel like going to work today. Take me to the beach. And it will say, I'm sorry, Boogie Bumper. I'm only scheduled to take you to work and pick you up at 5 p.m. and bring you back home again. I'm sorry. I can't take you anywhere that isn't planned for. So Terribly sorry about that. And you'll have to pay some, you know, ridiculous hacker a shit ton of money in order to hack your car so you can just drive around for a day. It's, 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 we, are under, we are under full spectrum war. It's beyond Donald Trump at this. It's not even about Donald Trump. The, 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 the Donald Trump dynamic is just but one fraction of the issues that are confronting us in the next 10, 20, 30 years. The Donald Trump um, factor is like, that's like our launch pad into issues that go way beyond traditional politics. In 20 years, we won't be talking about Democrats and Republicans. We won't be talking about left and right. The, 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 the world is going to be fundamentally shifted and things are going to be a lot... They're going to be in your face. I, you know, I never even really used to think about this stuff until I did that article for that magazine about the Internet of Things and I didn't even know anything about the Internet of Things before I wrote the article. I spent a week researching what the Internet of Things is, and then all of us, like, I wrote the article and I put it in, and I was like, it looked like I'd seen a ghost for the next month. Just considering all of the possibilities that come with this kind of connectivity between devices. Scared the fuck out of me. It should scare the fuck out of you too. Tim says, that's why I like my Dodge with a Cummins Turbo. Yeah, and a big four-barrel Holly carb on top of it too. UK police use AI system to stop crime before it happens. The system found... Pre-crime. Now we're into pre-crime. Isn't this, isn't this just fucking lovely? Isn't this wonderful? We could stop crime before it happens. How, you stop, how do you know you're stopping crime then? Maybe you're just picking on someone... The system found 1,400 indicators that could help prevent crime. Indicators, yep. Psychologists talk about shit like risk factors. Oh, we we need to uh, we we need to put this child into a special education uh, routine and give him special medication because he exhibits a number of risk factors. But the whole nature of risk is you're not 100 percent sure that it's actually going to happen, right? Just bring up something without notice. Something without notice, just for fun. Great little video here. Put things in, into perspective for you. Um, I 
The only drugs that are even popular anymore, all the dummy drugs, all the drugs that make you more boring, all the mood stabilizer, antidepressant. Everyone's got some mental disorder they've been diagnosed with, and they take a fucking pill. I, they push them on me all the time. I got ruin so many relationships because I get yeah I because I think I fucking think all the time. Sorry. Oh jeez. Oh, you, 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 Think it's ADD. No, it's not ADD. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about a lot of stuff. It's not ADD. Yeah, I stutter a lot. And I fuck stuff up, but I, that's because I'm always thinking. Well, you're not listening to me because I'm thinking about something that's more interesting than you. I'm trying to. I'm trying to build a. a Perfect utopian society in my head. And what are you talking to me about? Bowling or what? I, 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 and I do. I have a head that just, just won't shut the fuck up. So where do the ideas come from? Do you have a, a head like that? Do you have the brain that just won't shut the fuck up all the time? You learn to work with it. I ain't not taking fucking medication for it. That's also where the ideas come from. I'll just pour some alcohol on that when it happens and try to even it out. You work with your problems. Fucking everyone's taking pills just because you're afraid of standing out. Or uh, I was terrified when my doctor told me that I had a unique and interesting personality trait. <laughs> but then he told me about new Zoloft and Prozac, and I just take three pills a day, and I blend into this fucking horrible inbred corporate landscape and I don't care so they'll, they'll legalize any drug so long as that drug keeps you producing that's all they give a shit about is production you're kicking out enough boxes at the plant well go it's whatever keeps you doing that keeps you vaguely content sitting in a cubicle go ahead FDA approved I have a job where I alphabetize insurance forms 45 hours a week, and I noticed I couldn't concentrate so well on my job, so my doctor put me on Adderall, and now I can just breeze through my work day. I don't even notice that my empty life is being pissed away underneath fluorescent tubes. Oh, I, I have no highs or lows. I have no good stories. I'm just, uh, but I'm getting a lot of stuff done. I'm probably the most boring person I know, but look at me produce. I just go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, I'm going to take a pill for that. You're not concentrating. It is funny. That's fucking boring, and that's a natural reaction to boring. Don't concentrate. Brilliant. You don't need a drug for that. It's boring. That's why you're not concentrating. <laughs> Just thought I'd try that in there. Yes, I used to taking it slow. I ain't gung-ho I'm a regular Joe It sounds like something out of Minority Report But police in the UK want to try and use artificial intelligence to prevent violent crimes before they occur What the fuck is going on in the UK? According to a report by New Scientist which is a pretty good mag 
The system is called the National Data Analytics Solution. <laughs> God. God. Did everyone watch uh, last week when we talked about uh, the Orwell essay from 1946 called Politics in the English Language? <laughs> if you missed uh, the presentation on politics in the English language, go back and rewatch it and then come back to this part of this show where we're talking about the National Data Analytics Solution Scheme. <laughs> It works by using a combination of AI and statistics to assess the risk of someone becoming a victim of gun or knife crime, as well as them becoming a victim of modern slavery. Modern slavery, I would think, would be a very slow-moving process. Tim says AI is a threat. It uh, is a threat. Uh, Tim, like I know you've only been watching for a reasonably short amount of time. Um, you'd be surprised. There was actually like I had a ton of periscopes before. Hours, I've done hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on AI. So much show, uh, pardon me, it's getting late. So much so that people were actually saying to me, can you just get off the AI thing? I think you've done enough AI now. People who have been here for a while, like Kimmy, uh, they'll tell you like it was basically like an AI orgy for months and months and months. <laughs> like, Don't get me started on AI, man. Don't give up. It, it won't stop. We'll be going for weeks if you, if you get me rolling on the AI topic. However, the measures that are taken once this system has identified an individual are a matter of discussion, says Ian Donnelly, the lead on the project. I like that, the matter of discussion. That's like uh, when they talk about the kill decision in drones. So what they say is uh, the drones can identify, quote-unquote, enemy fighters on um, or enemy targets. They don't say fighters, they say targets on like a battlefield, but uh, ultimately the kill decision, like the decision to actually bomb those fuckers, has to be made by a human being. But what they don't tell you is that the kill decision is also written into the programming and the humans can like actually turn off their decision-making process. They can they can write themselves out of the decision-making process with like one button. So right now, the protocol is that the humans have the killed. It's called a kill decision in the drone technology and the and the um you know the pilotless um, planes and shit like that. But the the technology exists already for the kill decision to be automated, which is scary enough in of itself. Because if you are committed to humans being the ultimate decider of who lives and who dies on the battlefield. Why would you make sure that the kill decision could be handled by machines? Just in case you wanted to, right? The intention apparently is not to arrest, but rather to provide support <laughs> from health or social workers in the area. For now, one of the examples given is counselling individuals with a history of mental health issues or potential victims being contacted by social services. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you like that? To just be living your your life, you're going to work, you, you know, you're earning money, you're putting food on the table, and then somebody from the, what is it called? The National Data Analytics Solution Team gives you a call on the telephone and says, I don't want to alarm you. But you are now you are now in the red zone. We have identified you of being at risk of being knifed to death by your neighbour. Sleep well. 
We are contacting you from the pre-crime department. Unfortunately, we can't arrest him yet for now. God willing, those laws will change eventually. But we do want to let you know that we have been analysing the data. We have we are from the data analytics solution team, the data analytics solution department of the government. We have been analysing your data, and it appears he is in the high risk category for men who would stab to death single women living in an apartment in your suburb. Just letting you know. Sweet dreams. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, General Eaton gets the award to- tonight for the most depressing articles. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Laney. See you next time. Good question, Ducks Regionist. Alex Jones can't be on the internet, but the UK can predict crimes. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. Ohio becomes the first state to accept cryptocurrency for business taxes. Well, I don't see any problem with this. <laughs> oh God! Is everyone is everyone outside of this um, chat room right now? Is everyone outside of this Periscope, this this YouTube, this this podcast recording? Is is everyone outside of this fucking mental or what? What the fuck is going on out there? Maybe we're too plugged in. Maybe we haven't spent enough time sitting back and looking at what else is going on in the world. Business cryptocurrency for business taxes? What the fuck is going on? It's it's not even real money. It's an it's a fucking algorithm. Um, I did a whole presentation on cryptocurrency. Fuck, it must have been like a year ago now. It's on YouTube somewhere. Uh, I can't even remember what it's called. I'll tweet it out one day. And we went through it, and I, like I even explained how like um, the majority of shares in Bitcoin are owned by South Koreans, and the South Korean government was the first to regulate that you can no longer be anonymous and own Bitcoin. So any new Bitcoin owners have to be, um, you know, identified to the government and nobody was fucking talking about it. And I said, you watch, like, this will make share prices go through the floor because the whole appeal about Bitcoin and stuff is that uh, the anonymous factor, right? And everyone's like, oh, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, yeah, okay, I don't understand Bitcoin. But what I do understand is the people that um, control fiat currency aren't just going to sit back and play with themselves while you come up with some disruptive technology that's going to send them broke. You know, they're going to find a way to, uh, you know, massage around the problem that you're creating. And whilst they still own the entire network of federal reserves and own most of the governments in the world, what the fuck do you think they're going to do? They're going to regulate it, man. And sure as fuck. Uh, you know, the Korean government was the first one to go and people say, oh, who gives it, Who cares what happens in South Korea? The problem is most of the Bitcoin, you know, shares are in South Korea. That's why it matters. You know, idiotic um, Australians and people in the UK and Westerners, you know, and Americans think, who cares what goes on in South Korea? This is America. Fucking who cares? You know, we control this shit. No, you don't. Most of the Bitcoin owners are in South Korea. 
you're you're on the arse end of the deal. You don't decide what happens. The South Korean government does. Believe it or not. I know it sounds ridiculous. But them's the facts. And so what happened was that like a, uh, a one, it was at least one or two months of like a, a media campaign to say it was constant. Buy in Bitcoin, buy in Bitcoin, buy in Bitcoin, buy in Bitcoin. So all of these, they call them Ma and Pa investors, you know, threw in there like 1000 bucks, 2000 bucks, 10000 bucks, 20000 bucks. They bought up Bitcoin because everyone's like, oh, you bought it, you've got to buy now if you're going to get rich. All the while, people already knew that the South Korean government was going to pass this regulation that was going to send the price through the floor. So you build up the price. The top investors, the people who have been in it for six or seven years, most of them South Korean, who already knew what the South Korean government was doing, manufactured this bubble. People in America, Australia, the UK, Germany, France, wherever, fucking Africa, who gives a fuck? They all bought in with their pennies. That boosted the price up because it all depends on how many investors you've got. That's what decides uh, how much Bitcoin is worth. The price goes up. They sold at the top of the tree, at the top of the, when the price hit its top. The South Korean government passed a regulation. The price, the price went through the floor. What is it now? Like, what are we down to about now? Like 8,000 or something like that? It'll drop a little bit more and then all of the original investors who made like 100 times or 200 times or 300 times on their original investment will buy back in again and the whole process will happen again. You say it's ridiculous, but you'll be sitting here in six months going, shit, that guy was right. In conjunction with this weekend's Blockland Solutions Conference, Ohio Treasurer Josh Mandel has announced that the state will now accept cryptocurrency for certain business taxes. So I guess the state wants to go broke too. We are proud to... Uh, what, are you going to build roads with cryptocurrency now? What? How can a state accept taxes in cryptocurrency? Are you going to pay teachers in cryptocurrency? Are you going to build hospitals in cryptocurrency? Biggest pump and dump in human history. Dr. Gonzo gets it. 4,000 right now. Well, there you go. Are you going to pay public servants in cryptocurrency? What the hell are they talking about? Cryptocurrency is such a high risk investment. I would never I would never invest in cryptocurrency because it's too volatile. All you got to do is look at like a, you know, a value map of the last 2 years and you'll see like massive highs, massive lows. Vol- investors don't like volatility. Investors would rather, um, you know, slow, predictable uh, increase in value than high risk. Only only a fraction of investors go after high risk, and and you know the people that go after high high risk, they've either, they've either got like a small amount of money or a lot of money. It's not the in between people. In between people don't go after high risk investments. In between people are trying to get to the get to the high money thing so they can start taking more risks because they've got more uh, behind them. It's not an investment. The only demand is novelty. Well, it's like, it's like, it's like throwing darts, isn't it? You invest when you invest when it's like, you know, 4,500 and you wake up the next morning and check it. And if it's 4,800, then you take your money out again. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's bullshit. To facilitate these payments, Mandel has launched OhioCrypto.com. 
businesses can register there and pay their invoices with Bitcoin, which is currently the only accepted cryptocurrency. All payments will be processed by the third-party processor BitPay. A minimal fee will be charged to confirm the transaction. So now the government's getting involved in cryptocurrency. You can bet your bottom dollar that cryptocurrency is going to be worth, worth less than toilet paper in Ohio 12 months from now. No one's buying cryptocurrency if it's, if it's you know, you can trade the government with it. Yeah, we're going to charge you a small fee to pay in, in cryptocurrency. By the way, just leave all your details here, Mr. Cryptocurrency Payer. For your business taxes, let's take your business registration number. Let's take your, you know, personal security numbers. Let's take your bank account number and give us your Bitcoin. Now you're more than welcome to pay us in Bitcoin, sir. Yeah, I'm sure people are going to just fucking fall over themselves going in for this hot deal. James, it's a good gamble now as a stock investment to guess at the manipulation coming. Yeah, because it's so low, right? Because it's so low. I mean, the only gamble now is, right, because it's so low, the only gamble now is, can it go lower before I buy in? But absolutely. I suspect it will go up again at some point. But it's ultimately worthless. And you might lose everything too. Hillary has coughing fit after trashing President Trump in Toronto. Oh, oh, Hillary. Oh, Hillary. How the worm turns. How the worm turns. I was amazed that anybody, like, people said that there was 83% empty seats at the Hillary speaking tour where she would go and recite for the 4,000th time why it was everybody else's fault that she lost the 2016 election and not her own. I, people said, oh, there was 83% empty seats. I was surprised at that. I was like, only 83%? I thought, fuck, I've lost all faith in humanity that 17% of those seats were filled. Honestly. You can see the Hillary Clinton comedy tour on YouTube if you want to spend an entire knife with a, a knife to your, your veins on your wrist watching Hillary Clinton speak about the 2016 election. If you want to do that, then go for it. You can do it on YouTube for free. The best part is you won't have to commit suicide and be somebody else's problem. You can just lay in the bathtub, put the laptop up, put the knife to your wrist, press play, and then cut to your heart's content, comrade. Bill and Hillary Clinton kicked off their 13-city tour dubbed an evening with the Clintons. <laughs> Terrible marketing. Tuesday night at the Scotiabank Arena in Toronto, Ontario. Hillary Clinton began the night by joking that she was thinking about running for parliament. Then she trashed Donald Trump. Shortly after she trashed Trump, her coughing fit returned. Hillary Clinton reached for a glass of water, which was set on the table next to her chair. Clinton continued to cough, even though she took a sip of water. All right, I don't need the description. Let's just watch the fucking video. People like me saying, wait a minute, why are we doing this? Let's try to stop it. So I'm going to ask a, a question, uh, a serious question, and then, and then maybe we'll end up on a little bit of a lighter note. But uh, the United States pulled out of uh, the Paris Accords, climate accords. Every other country in the world 
is a contributor. I guess my question to you, because this is very difficult for Canada. It's funny, too, because she would know the coughing fit is a meme and she would be trying desperately to stop coughing. But when have you ever tried to stop coughing? It makes you cough more. It's better if you actually get it out. You know what I mean? What a cruel twist of fate. The first show. The first show. She was looking for people to feel bad for her. Oh, I don't know. There was one of my favorite quotes about Hillary Clinton comes from a lifelong socialist by the name of Christopher Hitchens, and who was a wordsmith and a, and a brilliant mind and a, a brilliant debater as well. Very expressive, um, luscious, luscious use of language, put it that way, from Christopher Hitchens. And he once said of Hillary Clinton, um, Hillary Clinton is a solipsistic crocodile who sheds who sheds crocodile tears for the people and saves the real tears for herself. <laughs> a solipsistic crocodile. Few better than Christopher Hitchens when he was in his prime. Tom Arnold. Tom Arnold responds to that Secret Servant visit over his tweets. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, a little. Someone, someone paid Tom a visit. Let's see what Tom's got to say for himself. They did cancel the rest of the tour, James. Absolutely. Tom Arnold has opened up about the visit he was paid by the Secret Service over his tweets. Arnold is an outspoken critic of the president and recently starred in a Viceland series called The... Yeah, good question from Follow Q. James, do you remember that episode we did of Trust and Verify where uh, we did the hammering of Tom Arnold and it was the best hammering we ever did because Tom Arnold was actually trolling... uh, Was it CNN? I think he was on CNN, right? And he was trolling CNN... And making a complete fucking mockery because he all he had to do was tweet one photo of him and Michael Cohen and come out and make some ridiculous claims that he's got all of these secret tapes on Donald Trump. He was promoting his show on Viceland and CNN. Oh, format. Oh, thank you. And CNN couldn't wait. They couldn't wait to get him in like some producer at CNN was like, oh my God, Tom Arnold, we've got to get him on the set. We've got to talk to him right now. He's got the dirt. He's got the, he's got what he's got it all. (laughs) And he sat there and absolutely toyed with this woman, like turned her into a complete fool. And everyone was like, ah, you know, Tom Arnold, he's such a dickhead. I'm like, no, he's a fucking genius. Do you see what he's doing here? (laughs) He has CNN wrapped around his little finger. (laughs) This is one of the greatest trolls of all time, and he's doing it in real time. It's the greatest hammering of all time by Tom Arnold. So, yeah, uh, Follow Q asks a good question. What happened to them? What happened to them tapes, Tom? Yo, Tommy. Tommy boy. Tommy. Yo, Tom Tom. Remember them tapes, brother? Remember we were talking about those tapes? What's happening with the tapes? You got the tapes? going to finish the tapes? Remember your novel? <laughs> For the Family Guy fans. You're working on your novel? Got to finish your novel? 
Hunt for the Trump tapes. I'm going to dig as deep as I have to to expose the ugly truth about the ugly man. This is real life and it's terrifying. Have you found the tapes? On Monday, the actor issued a statement in which he thanked the hard work and dedication of the Secret Service after he was apparently paid a visit last week over some of his more volatile tweets concerning President Donald Trump. Arnold said in part, I heard your message loud and clear. Words matter. Tone matters. Words can incite violence. Be responsible. I'm sorry, Donald Donald Trump hasn't listened to you all the times you've had this exact conversation with him. I'm sorry the president and White House say things that they knew could incite violence on the media and U.S. citizens almost daily. The comic and act... (laughs) Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. It's my kind. Chicago is my kind of town, Chicago. Dr. taped his conversation with the agents, which took place in his living room. He released the tapes to Mother Jones, which posted a portion of the conversation. In the video, one of the agents explains that previous attempts on a president's life were motivated by someone else. Arnold told the agents he understood what they were saying in the video, and he reiterated that in his Monday statement. The Secret Service did not respond to a request for comment. For more on this story... (laughs) The Secret Service did not respond to a request for comment. I don't blame them. (laughs) Facebook shuts down War Room. God, this is a marathon. Facebook shuts down War Room fighting election interference. Employees at at work in Facebook's war room. Facebook said Monday it has shuttered a war room that was meant to fight election interference as the social network grapples with a fresh round of scandals. Well, it only took a fresh round of scandals for them to uh, make the big PR move of shutting down the war room to combat election interference after the midterms. And I'm pretty sure that the war room, or whatever you want to call it in its next incarnation, is probably still in existence It's just that it's not a public thing anymore, to be fair. The Menlo Park, California-based social network's decision to close the war room. Of course, it's closed. It's closed. There is no war room. Avert your eyes, children. The war room is no more. The dream is over. By the way, Mark, we still got that war room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't worry, Angela Merkel. We'll take care of it. comes as it scrambles to deflect a recent report that it hired a PR firm that waged an anti-Semitic online campaign against George Soros. Yes, because any criticism of George Soros is anti-Semitic. And by this time tomorrow, any criticism of Laura Loomer will also be anti-Semitic. Don't, don't pretend, when you, when it happens, act surprised. Just letting you know. In a statement to the Post, Facebook said that it actually intends to expand its anti-interference efforts. Well, there you go. And will bring the war room back at an appropriate time. Well, there <laughs> you, don't even have to, you don't even have to imagine that they're going to keep doing it. They just told you. We're actually making the war room bigger. We're closing the war room. But what we did in the war room, well, we're just going to carry on and actually do it twice as much. Thanks. At least they're honest. (laughs) At least they're honest. They know that most people won't read past the first paragraph. 
Here we go. This is the one you wanted to know about. I just can't even. Hackers can detect your butt plug from outside your house and turn it on. Ladies and gentlemen. I think we need this one for this for this story. It'll make sense in a second. Well, I got a little boogie, but it ain't too clean. It's real low down and it's kind of mean. The dirty boogie. Dirty boogie. The dirty boogie. Oh, when I get low down, it's the dirty boogie for me. There you go. It's the dirty boogie. What's it called? The dirty boogie. Hey, y'all. Hackers can detect your butt plug from outside your house and turn it on. Look at the little little, little diagram here with the butt plugs. <laughs> Some of those are very long butt plugs. They look like butt slash prostate plugs. The chilling scenario came a step closer today as hackers at Pentest Partners, short for Penetration Test, naturally, showed how to take over Bluetooth butt plugs. Why would anybody need a Bluetooth butt plug? Scarily, hackers could detect smart toys from outside your house and then make them go berserk. So this is this comes back into the Internet of Things again. So when all of your devices are connected and operating over a network, you can turn on your oven, you can turn on your porch light, you can unlock your door all by using your smartphone because you'll have an app that says, like, turn on the oven, turn on the toaster, turn on the TV, turn on the lights, whatever. It just makes sense that eventually somebody would put a chip in a butt plug or a sex toy and then so you can be you can be so lazy that you can be laying in bed with your legs up in the air like you're at a gynecologist and take out your iPhone because you don't want to reach around your own thigh and click the on switch so you can actually pick up your iPhone and go vibrate and your butt your butt plug and or vibrator will start going off and pleasuring you in the way that only a butt plug or vibrator can. So anything that has a chip and anything that communicates on the internet or over a Wi-Fi network can be hacked. Anything. Google Home, right? So it makes total sense to me that Hackers would drive around setting people's butt plugs off. Now, the question then becomes: Do you do you how do you like to wear your butt plug? Do you like to keep it in all day? Because this is the other thing too. Uh, You might be sitting next to someone at a train station or a bus stop, or even in the office, ladies and gentlemen, even in a restaurant. Now, I want you to be acutely aware that when you're sitting next to somebody in a restaurant or at a bus station or a, tra- a train station or whatever, if they take out their smartphone, punch in a couple of digits, pun intended, and then start smiling to themselves, now you know what they're doing. They are turning on their digital butt plug. They are turning on their digital dildo. You cannot trust people who use smartphones in public places anymore. <laughs> At best, they're turning on their own butt plug or vibrator or dildo. At worst, they're turning on somebody else's. Might be might be a great pickup technique if you if you know that a you know a lovely young woman may be 
wearing a butt plug, a digital butt plug or a dildo in a bar and you have the ability to hack into that technology, it might be in your interest to, you know, uh, let it be known. Maybe you can turn on her digital dildo or her digital butt plug at that point. And just at that moment, maybe 20 seconds later, walk up and say, hey, can I buy you a drink? (laughs) Maybe you turn on her butt plug and then send a picture of yourself like at the other end of the bar going, here I am. (laughs) The technology knows that I'm the one for you. Hey, baby, watch this. The practice of taking over smart sex toys is now known as screw driving or war driving, a hacker term for finding Wi-Fi networks while driving. Researchers from the Pentest Partners were able to detect a LoveSense Hush, a smart sex toy remotely, and they could have set it on full power. The researchers write, one could drive the Hush's motor to full speed and as long as the attacker remains connected over BLE and not the victim, there is no way they can stop the vibrations. We've not set out to kink shame anybody for their use of these devices. Adult toys appeal to a huge spectrum of people and their ubiquity allows people to enjoy a sex-positive life. However, we think that these same people should be able to use them without fear of compromise or injury. Absolutely sensational. Digital rectal probing, uh, probing, just what we needed. Forget about the NSA. There are men driving around your suburb right now trying to switch on your butt plug. All the NSA wants to do is listen to your phone calls. These want these guys want to send vibrations into your anus. Vlad the Imposter Twitter suspends fake Putin account. Beth Duffy, that had racked up almost one million followers. Well, thank God Twitter is stepping in the way of stopping fake news. Steel Panther, the greatest, one of the greatest questions men as men have ever had. I'm going to have to go through to 2905. Are we live yet? The, the Phoenix. University of Phoenix does not have a major in. We all graduated in from there. In Phoenix? Oh, God. Here, Nick has a question. What country has the hottest chicks? Now, let's Ooh, get down to it. That's a great okay. fucking question. Okay. That's a great question because I actually do have a PhD go, in just this subject. Toured the world extensively, and uh, I did my uh, minor in buttholes, in bleach buttholes. Yes, that's not, with, again, with an emphasis on geographical hotness. Bleach. Geographical hotness, I can tell you right now, you're not going to believe this shit, okay? A lot of people will not believe this. A lot of people oh, would say such. Brazil or, you know... South Korea, right? right? Those are pretty hot places, but greatest country in the world. I'm sure you'll agree with me. It starts with a P. Poland. Poland. Exactly. Some of the hottest. That makes sense. The great thing about them, Rob, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, they've all got very low self-esteem. Yeah, they're very repressed. (laughs) (laughs) I'll have to show that to my Polish mate, the voice of reason, Adam J. He'll smile when it's about... um, Poland having the hottest chicks, and then he'll hit me in the head with a bottle when it says they've all got low self-esteem. Free tree for firewood, the famous Hillary Clinton tree. Several years ago, Hillary Clinton's motorcade passed by my humble home near Zionsville Road and West uh, 62nd Street in Northwest Indy. 
Apparently, she became so displeased that her staff could not move my ash tree from the right to the left. She smote the tree and it died immediately. It would be a pleasure to donate this corpse of a tree to your next deplorable bonfire gathering. Just cut her down and haul her away. That is a fantastic strategy for tree removal, though, isn't it? I've got a tree that needs removing. I never thought of giving away, giving it away for free. Hey, free firewood. Just, just come and cut the bastard down yourself. <laughs> if the ad is still up, the tree is still up. <laughs> Trump is still president and the tree is still available. Regrettably, I am retired and on limited income or I'd be able to pay for removal myself. Don't waste my time. Please, no stump kickers. Nice touch. Cut it down and haul it away at your own risk, and only if you are serious about MAGA. No, I will not send it through Western Union, nor will I allow a third party, libertarian, socialist, etc. to pick it up for you. (laughs) I would prefer all replies are transmitted through mental telepathy. But at my age, I often forget to remove my tinfoil hat, which might be blocking our thoughts. So if I don't seem to be responding or the responses come back in Russian, you may want to try the email provided. If you can't physically help me rid uh, rid me of this menacing figure, for God's sake, act fast. We have children in our neighborhood. A donation to have it removed might be the option for you, although it might be only a small start to making America great again. Starting in my once tranquil neighborhood is as good as any place to begin. Consult with your tax specialist to verify if your donation is axe deductible. Ah, oh, well done. Bravo. Well done. The best of Craigslist. Fantastic. Fantastic. Wonderful. And that, that brings us to the end. I know. Nearly five hours ago, who would have thought that we would make it this far? But make it this far, we did, ladies and gentlemen. It was quite the ride we went on. We experienced the highs, the lows. We talked about Laura Luma. You all joined me for some unknown reason. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why. But I hope you had fun, nonetheless. Follow Q, Kimmy, Celeste Gray, Dr. Gonzo, Sam, Steph, Key Wizard, Millie, the owner and CEO of TAVshow.com with the digital butt plugs, James R., Kim Boyd. Uh, by the way, I will be on TAVshow.com with the butt plug boy, James R., <clears throat> himself. Stop incumbency. It's good to see you again. I haven't seen you for a while. Uh, Angie, Sin Soaked, J-Dub. Who else have we got? Dave. South Florida, Word Smiter, Sandra, General Eaton, of course. How could I forget General Eaton? The most depressing uh, mix of articles I've ever had in one day, General Eaton. So I appreciate that. (laughs) In the great tradition, in the great tradition of Russian meddling, I'm going to take us out with a particular tune. But until next time, guys, stay calm. Stay rational. Anyone else I've forgotten? J-Dub. I don't want to forget anybody. Lynn Brooks, thanks for joining us. Dave. Who else have I forgotten? Kim Boyd. I think I said Kim Boyd. Jules. 
Did you miss the highs this morning? Oh, you missed everything. Tim, thanks for joining us. Tim in Pennsylvania. What an absolute pleasure. Chief Tor, great fun. I hope you had fun. We'll be back next week with the podcast. I'll be, like I said, Sunday night, Trusted Verifier with the ubiquitous, uh, ubiquitous James R. James will be on Pirate Radio tonight, your time, with the indubitable Chris Mack, who I'm very fond of. And they always have a good time. It's always a good laugh. So stay tuned for that if you're interested. Nisi, Nisi and PA, you've been here since the start. Thanks for joining us. But until next time, guys, stay calm, stay rational, stay a Russian bot. God bless. And we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. In the tradition of Russian bots, to celebrate the removal of Vladimir Putin and online censorship. Have a good night, guys. See you soon. Stefan Sears. Did I forget Stefan? Thanks for joining us, Stefan. Thanks for the articles. Love the pussy melter, mate. Love machine. It was a shame how he carried on. Vladimir Putin, ladies and gentlemen, Russia's greatest love machine. Him and Donald Trump. And the guys from Steel Panther who are laying all of the Poland chicks. Poland's pretty close to Russia. Pretty close. Close enough. Thunderbird. Thunderbird. that Donald Trump may be the reincarnation of Rasputin, if you think about it.
Donald Trump is Russia's greatest love machine. He has sex with all of the women, including the Russian hookers in Moscow. He forces them to urinate on him. And his lust for power was so insatiable. Though he was a brute, they just fell into his arms. And then some men of higher standing set a trap for him. Da da Donald Trump hooker in the Russian brown. There you go. Da da Donald Trump fucked her in her Russian rump in a hotel bed in the Moscow. Da da Donald Trump hookers pissed on Tony's rump. Those Russians. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. God bless. Bye.